VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. And good morning, everyone. Dzień dobry. Um, guten Morgen. Bon matin. How are y'all doing? Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. Uh, raring to go after a week off. Uh, Dave, I managed to get a bit of spring cleaning done on my week off. It wasn't the best of weather, so... I got at it, and I got at it um, pretty heavily. <laughs> I got pretty involved. Uh, their closets neatly arranged now. It's just a. It's a. It's a. It should have been a reality TV in the making. <laughs> just saying. It was. Uh, I'm so proud of myself. Anyway, <laughs> um, lots of interesting news over the last little while, including in the sports world on the weekend. Great news for Leafs fans. You a Leaf fan, Dave? No, um, I'm not going to say who I root for, uh, but uh, great news for Leafs fans uh, this weekend. Toronto defeated the Tampa Bay Lightning in an overtime upset. First playoff series win in 19 years. And you could hear the Leafs fans throughout Newfoundland and Labrador, the big it had to be crazy in um, Toronto when that happened, even though uh, they won in Florida. Now they take on the other Florida team, the Florida Panthers, starting tomorrow night. So very exciting indeed. I'd love to hear from some Leafs fans who've been waiting a very long time for this kind of, what, you, what would you call it, boost? The chances... The dream is alive. Well, the Public Service Alliance strike is over for the most part. Uh, if you're looking for a passport, for instance, there's a better chance today that you might get it sooner than you would have just a few days ago. Negotiations continue, however, for the bargaining unit representing CRA employees. I'm assuming that it's going to be the same template and, and the likes of that. So with any luck, fingers crossed. Um, that the the strike in its entirety will be over, but for the me in the meantime, about thirty thousand or so um, public service alliance workers across Canada remain on strike for the time being. Uh, a huge number of workers were affected by this strike. I was amazed driving past the CRA building on Friday just how many people were walking that picket line. It was hundreds and hundreds. Um, a big sticking point, of course, for the union was maintaining. Maintaining that flexibility to work from home. Of course, what happened was a lot of federal government workers were hired during the height of the pandemic, and that was to keep to help uh, administer various programs to keep people going through the pandemic. And many have been working from home since that time. They've never been in the office, although they were being asked to return to the office within the last couple of weeks. Workers are now uh, being asked to come in, and a lot of people would ask, well, so what? I've had to go back to my office some time ago. But I'm told in many cases there wasn't enough space to accommodate them, uh, working in shifts and that sort of thing instead. So, uh, you know, workers were being told, Okay, we'll have you here uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you'll be working from this desk on Monday, but you might be working from that desk on Wednesday, and we don't know where we're going to put you on Friday, but we'll figure it out at that time. Those kinds of things. Um, so for many workers, the question is, if I'm able to work comfortably and efficiently from home, 
then why should I have to come into the office when there isn't even a desk available for me to work from? So um, that was one of the sticking points. And apparently they made some real progress in uh, negotiations on the weekend in that vein. So if there's anybody involved with the union or who is uh, heading back to the workplace, whether it be from home or in the office uh, this morning, they're welcome to give us a call. Well, Canada's premiers wrote an open letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau late last week indicating that they are deeply concerned for the safety of Canadians and the first responders who serve them. And they're asking that the federal government act without delay to ensure that Canadian communities remain safe and protected against violent crime committed by repeat offenders. And these would be repeat uh, violent offenders. So what they're seeking is federal support and action to strengthen the bail system through changes to the criminal code. They're not saying specifically in their release what those changes would be, but they've been having conversations with the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police and with the federal government on this for some time now. Um, They're looking uh, for what they call a stronger bail system that prioritizing, uh, sorry, prioritizes keeping violent repeat offenders off the streets. So how will that work? Uh, How will that work in our correction systems? The questions remain, uh, but a lot of people reacting very viscerally to this. It feels like we've seen increases in violent crime in recent um, years, particularly since the pandemic. And that, you know, creates uh, fear in the community. It creates uncertainty in the community, places where people used to uh, feel very safe. Uh, Suddenly they don't feel safe anymore. And uh, safety is one of those intangibles, isn't it? You either feel safe or you don't feel safe. And there's no rational way to rationalize that. Sorry to use the same words all the time. But... um, you know, it, it's a feeling that you have. And if you're seeing headlines that say this has happened here and that's happened there and you don't know exactly what the circumstances are and whether these people were known to each other and whether there was a history involved and all of those things that contribute to some of these um, acts of violence, uh, not saying that any of it is acceptable, um, then that creates fear and uncertainty. And people want to feel safe in their own homes and in their own communities. Uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, I was, uh, during my week off, um, I was able to get out around the bay. And anybody who uh, listens to this show and anything else that I've ever done over the years knows that uh, uh, my I have deep roots in Conception Bay North in the um, Carboneer area, and I was out to see that iceberg in Harbor Grace. Now I have to say, from my vantage point, I didn't notice anything amiss with that particular berg, so to speak. But uh, some drone footage uh, taken over the last little while and uh, posted online. Beautiful pictures. It's just amazing what drones can capture. Um, have sort of highlighted one of the elements of one of these. It, it's got these three towers, or did. I understand it's after breaking off since then, but it has these three towers when I was looking at it on, what was it, Thursday. And one of the towers 
happens to look like a specific part of the human anatomy. So that prompted people to call this, and Newfoundlanders are so funny, Dickie Berg. <laughs> um, and uh, so that went viral, of course. And of course, it caught the attention of national media and all the rest. And it's gone absolutely viral. I understand that it no longer exists as it once was. Uh, but there you have it. And uh, a lot of people playing on that. I notice uh, a lot of memes, a lot of uh, even ads uh, about it. So a very uh, funny, a little bit of uh, lighthearted. Uh, business there over the weekend and um, uh, it's funny you know when they discovered this thing on Thursday I happened to be in Carbonier at the time and I had no idea I was shut off from the world so to speak being on vacation not paying as close attention to my phone and the like so uh, I was not aware at the moment while I was in Carbonier um, that they had uncovered this mysterious cave-like structure under Water Street. Now, it's a good thing I didn't know, because if I did know, I'd be down there crawling around in this thing, <laughs> because that's what I'm like. You can't get handy to it, I understand, because, you know, there are safety concerns and the like, but they did leave it exposed over the weekend so that people could view it from a safe distance, and a lot of people speculating about what it could be, some people thinking it was part of the old sewer system, other people thinking it might harken way back, way back, uh, possibly to the time of the uh, French raids in the 1600s when uh, Carbonier fought off uh, Mr. Deberville and his uh, fellows. So um, anyway, it's fascinating stuff and um, uh, leads to a lot of speculation. I understand the uh, chief archaeologist was down there having a look. It even has a wooden floor. So uh, to my mind, that would make it unlikely that it dates to the 1600s. But what do I know? Nothing. Anyway, um, I'm going to leave it there. But uh, anything that you want to uh, raise on Open Line this morning, you're certainly welcome to do so. The numbers are coming up. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We are going to start the show this morning with Leon Mills with the Canadian Heart of Hearing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Hello, Leon. Good morning, Linda. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm getting on one of those, you know, colds kind of thing everybody seems to be getting these days, but uh, getting there. <laughs> no way to avoid it, hey, with this weather no, we're having. No, it isn't. No. So what brings you to us this morning? Well, I, I, you know, I just wanted to get on and let the viewers know uh, May is uh, Speech and Hearing Month in Canada. And uh, we just wanted, you know, to let viewers know a little bit about uh, some of the things that uh, that's happening this month that we're doing. A little bit extra to uh, promote, you know, awareness of hearing loss. And which, by the way, makes up about 20% of the overall population. And, and uh, with seniors, it can go up to 50 to 60%. So it's a big issue. And uh, so we've got four webinars going on uh, this month. And uh, on May 5th, we've got uh, a webinar on hearing health in the brain. On May the 11th, we have the importance of treating uh, hearing loss. May 12th, we have tinnitus 
retraining therapy, and on May 17th, we have supporting uh, hard-of-hearing children. So uh, there's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, four different uh, interesting webinars on the go, and it's all online, and people can go to our website at chha-nl.ca to uh, get those more information. And we have a Linda number of spaces here at our boardroom if anybody, you know, can't go online sort of thing. So that's uh, that's one of the key things that we want to talk about, uh, just, you know, a lot of things going on this month to promote uh, May as Speech and Hearing Month. Certainly, and I understand you also have a, a fundraising campaign underway, underway, Spend to Save, Investing in Hearing. What's that all about? Well, it's not a fundraising initiative per se. That, that's a new uh, initiative being uh, promoted to uh, try to get uh, governments across Canada to uh, basically form a partnership with other with the hearing groups that, so that everybody's on the same page uh, in terms of what's available and what kind of supports are available and all those kinds of things. As you might know, in Newfoundland, like we have the government will provide a cochlear implant to, to you know people that qualify. And uh, which is great. And uh, the problem with that, though, is that after eight to 10 years, when you need uh, a new uh, uh, processor, that particular part of it can cost up eight to ten thousand dollars, which you have to pay yourself. So we're trying to get advocate with governments, you know, uh, to think about this a bit more. You know, you're going to give somebody a gift of hearing and then you know, they can't afford to pay for it. You know, the, the, it's being taken away from them. So across Canada, you've got different standards in terms of, you know, how much support is provided for this kind of thing. Uh, some provinces will give a replacement, some will do a partial, that kind of stuff. So we're trying to get government to understand that like, an investment in hearing loss, treating hearing loss now, saves the economy and society tens of billions of dollars annually and leads to a better quality of life for people and less health help comes down the road like dementia and all these kinds of things. So uh, we're just trying to get, you know, all governments across Canada sort of uh, and the federal government to more or less, you know, try to get on the same page to to work together on on this and other uh, hearing health issues. Do cochlear implants work for everyone? Pardon? Sorry? Do cochlear implants work for everyone? Uh, pretty much. Uh, not everyone. Depends on, you know, everybody's hearing is uh, unique and their hearing loss is unique. But, but by and large, yes, the cochlear implant uh, for most people is, is it's a last step, really, for after you try various kinds of hearing aids, probably, and uh, they're no longer effective for you, right? Uh, hearing aid for some people now, when it gets really severe, they may hear some sound, but it's extremely, extremely difficult to understand, get clarity of speech and that kind of thing. So a cochlear implant is an absolutely amazing, amazing uh, medical device that, uh, you know, it, it's just helped restore most of the hearing that people have so that they can get on with their lives and feel less isolated, more inclusive, and all those kinds of things. So, yes, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful tool for sure. Adult hearing loss in particular for people who, you know, haven't uh, grown up with hearing loss and, uh, of course, learn American Sign Language and ways to communicate in that can be very isolating, can't it? It is extremely isolating. I, I mean, I, I have hearing loss myself. I, I've, I've worn hearing aids for uh, 38 years, I think it is, and I lost my hearing one day when I was in university. Uh, and my fourth year university decided to be a teacher, no less. And uh, I was deaf totally for three weeks, and luckily I got some of my hearing back. And, and so uh, I got the hearing aids, and they helped me to, you know, get back and finish school and be able to carry on. But a lot of people, you know, just cannot afford hearing aids. 
and uh, that's a problem. Uh, the government has a, a provincial hearing aid program, but it's it's really hard to qualify for it uh, from an income perspective because uh, it's uh, test based. Uh, but yeah, like the, they're amazing technology, and unfortunately. Only, I think, something like maybe one in five people who could benefit from hearing aid actually gets one. So, And when you consider that 20% of the overall population has some form of hearing loss, that's a very, very low number. And that means a lot of people are living very isolated lives. They withdraw from family, from friends, from the community activities. So it's really, really unfortunate. And that leads to longer-term health conditions, of course. So, so yeah, it's a serious problem, hidden problem. Is there a connection between uh, hearing loss and, and dementia? Oh, very much so. Uh, recent research in the last number of years in particular has shown this uh, quite severe connection. And the longer you have hearing loss and, and the take, before take you get um, sorry help for your hearing loss, then the impact of dementia down the road will be more severe. So the quicker that is treated, the less likely you are, you will get uh, you know dementia because you know the brain is a muscle like anything else in your body, and if it's not if it's not exercised, if, it, if it's not working properly, then it's going to deteriorate. And and studies have proven now that it does lead to dementia. So it's extremely important that seniors, uh, in particular, uh, you know, get help for the hearing loss. Uh, statistically, like I said, 20% of the people overall population has some form of hearing loss. But as we age, that number increases. So by the time you get to be 60, 70, there's 50 to 60% of seniors have some have, have hearing loss. So that's a really, really high number. That is high. And you mentioned the cost of hearing aids and how some people just can't access them. Are there any programs available to, yeah. um, to help with the cost of a hearing aid? Well, yeah, like I said, there is a provincial hearing aid program that means tested, you know, with your income and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's it's, it's really hard to qualify for it. If, if you have any reserves at all, almost, to, you know, you can't qualify. But a lot of people, you know, can't afford to shell out, you know, three or four or five, six thousand dollars for for this at one shot. And and so uh, it's extremely challenging for a lot of people. And that's why a lot of people can't get hearing. You know, they'd like to get some help for the hearing. But unfortunately, they don't have the means to pay for it up front, and and uh, there's no, no, there's not much out there in the way of support. Unfortunately, in Scandinavian countries, for example, uh, these are considered a medical device, so uh, the the government healthcare system pays for it. Anybody needs it, so but there's nothing like that available in Canada, unfortunately. But uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a serious issue. It's a, it's been a hidden issue for a long time. And, uh, you know, May is a month, like I said, we're trying to bring some attention to these kinds of issues and hopefully spark government's interest to, you know, try to do more for people with hearing loss, uh, not only provincially, but across Canada. Yeah, that's unfortunate because uh, as you were speaking about it, I was thinking, you know, uh, we've just seen this uh, big push for uh, extended dental care for seniors and the like, and the real health impacts of uh, neglecting your uh, dental care can have on a on a person, um, very serious impacts. And we know now the impacts of hearing loss on a person's overall health and well-being. And we're talking about aging in place. We're talking about uh, seniors living longer and healthier lives. It, it seems like this is a big gap. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, like I said, it was not dealt with. And unfortunately, you got all these seniors who are living longer lives, uh, living lives of isolation and loneliness. And, and it's terrible. And, and uh, it, we don't we can't quantify how many are, are out there like that. But we do know from our own experience with clients over the years that are, there are many, many people like that. And of course, we all, like you said, we have a, a, a quite a large 
seniors population and it's getting bigger so this this means that you know more and more people are going to be suffering uh, uh, from hearing loss and, and, and isolation and loneliness and you know health issues and all the things that go with it so it's extremely extremely unfortunate uh, issue and uh, a lot more resources need to be brought to bear to try to deal with it and the cost the cost on on the economy on on governments huge um, huge yeah, uh, billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars a year probably across the country, you know. And, uh, like, people may not be aware of this, but in Newfoundland, for instance, the number one claims uh, for workers' compensation for uh, probably the last 10, 20 years, maybe, uh, has been hearing loss. And people are not aware of that. So, like I said, it's, it's a very, very significant issue. And uh, the government really, really does need to try to pay more attention to it and, and the longer-term impacts and not try to put in, you know, short-term solutions kind of thing, right? So that, that really doesn't work or help anybody in the long term, you know. So May is Speech and Hearing Month, uh, and you have a couple of um, uh, events planned. Uh, you mentioned a few of them off the top. Uh, for anyone interested, uh, what are they again? Yeah, we've got uh, four webinars online. That's Hearing Health in the Brain, May 5th, and uh, Importance of Treating Hearing Loss, uh, May 11th, Tinnitus Retraining Therapy on May 12th, and support, Supporting Hard of Hearing Children on May 17th. And like I said, if people want more information and get the link, they can go to our website and uh, at chha-nl.ca and uh, get that information and follow the links and they can uh, register for the webinars. And like I said, if, if they don't have the ability to go online, we have some seating here in our boardroom, a limited number for people to attend in person. Leon Mills, I really appreciate this this morning. Thank you so much. Um, We appreciate you having us on, Linda, very, very much. Thank you. All righty. And Leon Mills is with the Canadian Hard of Hearing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, we have uh, lines open right now, getting off to a a rolling start here on a Monday morning. I know people feeling kind of sluggish and when the weather is not the best, uh, it uh, uh, doesn't really inspire you does it well i'd like to hear from you on anything uh that is on your mind on this uh mozzie miserable may 1st in newfoundland and labrador it's funny you know i was talking to a few people from outside of the country uh, over the last couple of days and uh, they're sending me pictures, uh, family and friends sending me pictures from away (laughs) beautiful sunshine and sandy beaches and palm fronds and um, um, flowers blooming in their front yards and all the rest of it and uh, and I had to send them pictures of the Dickie Bird (laughs) Bird in response it's like well this is what's going on here (laughs) um anyway uh i'd like to hear from you have you been away what's it like (laughs) what's it like uh give us a call uh anything that's on your mind now's the chance to do so um i'm going to take a short break here now and the phone numbers are coming up give us a call Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Anyway, uh, we're going to go now to Colin, uh, who is on the air. Just getting coordinated here. Sorry, Colin. Hi. Good morning, Miss Wayne. How are you this morning on this 1st of May? Great. How are you? Doing great, thanks. 
spring is in the air. Hopefully. Uh, we hope <laughs> sometime. <laughs> yeah, can't wait to get some sunlight and uh, start making some of that vitamin D, I think. Yeah, I did. The, the rays, the beams started coming in uh, through the windows. When was it? Uh, you almost you want to mark it on the calendar. I think it was Saturday evening yeah. <laughs> for Absolutely a brief moment. period of time before it ducked down below the horizon again. Anyway, tantalizing. I wanted to talk about the uh, Supreme Court of Canada decision there from about two weeks ago, uh, which applies to everybody across the country if you operate a motor vehicle. It's about random roadside breath tests okay. by the police, screening for alcohol. This was a case out of Quebec that a man was uh, convicted for refusing to uh, supply a breath test to the police. This case went back to 2017 before the uh, random roadside breath testing became mandatory. Now, for all drivers in the country, uh, which was in, uh, enacted in December 2018, but uh, this man uh, refused three times to provide a breath sample to the police. When the demand was made to him, the police did not have a uh, roadside screening device in their possession. He was convicted of that trial. He appealed that to the Quebec Court of Appeal. The Quebec Court of Appeal overturned that conviction and entered an acquittal. Then the Crown appealed that decision to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the uh, the acquittal of the man that was uh, uh, ended up by the Quebec Court of Appeal. And that decision was unanimous from the Supreme Court. Right. And now, decision... let's be clear now. This was uh, very specific to this type of case, was it not? Because uh, the officers involved did not have the device on them at the moment that they requested the breath sample, I suppose. That's right. Yeah. And because they, did not, because they were not in possession of the uh, device, when the demand was made, the Supreme Court of Canada rule that the demand was invalid and that the accused was under no obligation to comply with the demand. He did not commit an offense. So the, the, the takeaway from this story is that the police, in order to make the demand, the police must have the, uh, the device with them in order for the demand to be valid. Uh, the Supreme Court did say, however, that there may be uh, unusual circumstances in which a demand can be made um, whereby uh, there's a delay uh, in the demand and the actual uh, breath testing uh, scheme carried out, uh, there may be unusual circumstances, maybe for like uh, officer safety or something like that. But uh, generally speaking, uh, if if there's a demand being made, the police have to have the device um, on them, you know, uh, for the demand to be valid. So and, that, that's very important now. I, a- absolutely. Sorry, and, and more specific to this case as well uh, is my understanding that he was not, in fact, behind the wheel of a vehicle when the demand was made. That's right. He was on foot. Yeah. Right. So it and, makes it even uh, more specific to. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's very important because uh, when you are pulled over and now with the mandatory roadside uh, breath testing, uh, under the, uh, as this case was uh, being heard, the, the rules that had applied uh, to this man was that uh, the police had to have reasonable suspicion that you had alcohol in your body in order to make the demand. But now that since uh, December 2018, that uh, requirement has been uh, done away with, and the police can breath test anybody at any time now if, if you're in care and control of a motor vehicle. So you don't actually even have to be driving the vehicle, you'll be just sat in the driver's seat. You're deemed to be in care control of the vehicle. 
Um, and there's and there's other scenarios where they can demand breath tests and stuff too. But but this particular case uh, where there's random mandatory random roadside breath testing now for anybody, and uh, the reasonable suspicion requirement has been done away with. This is even more important now because when you're being detained by the police at the roadside and they demand a roadside breath test, clearly you're being detained. So that's an automatic um, gives rise to an automatic. Uh, violation of your constitutional right under Section 9 of the Charter to, to be free from arbitrary detention by, by the police. But uh, the Supreme Court Canada has ruled in previous cases that, that uh, uh, the detention is justified uh, as long as the police are carrying out uh, lawful procedures such as uh, checking for uh, driver's license, sobriety, and mechanical fitness of the vehicle. So, uh, you know, this is, this is very important. Uh, from a constitutional uh, point of view, too, not only for criminal law, but uh, where your rights are being suspended, however briefly, uh, it's incumbent upon the police to, when they do, when they do make a, a demand for, for a breath test, that they have the device present, you know? Right. And uh, there's a lot of uh, things that went on in this particular case. The the officers involved were looking for someone who uh, was reportedly driving an ATV while impaired and and all of this kind of thing. And they came across this um, the suspect or this individual uh, who appeared uh, on the surface to be impaired but was not driving an ATV. He was on foot, as you just indicated. They uh, demanded the uh, a breath sample but didn't have the device on them. He refused. And then he refused when other officers who brought the um, the device to him, he refused again, and he was charged with refusal. Yeah, and the the, the, the crux of the case there is the is the uh, time delay in in bringing the uh, device uh, to the scene. Right when the demand was made is what counts. If the uh, if the device was not present when the demand was made, as was in this case. The demand is on its face to be deemed uh, invalid, and if you refuse, you're not committing an offense, uh, absent unusual circumstances. Again, which Supreme Court left open to uh, to free future litigation, I guess, as to what what constitutes unusual circumstances. But generally speaking, if if you're pulled over and the demand is made for a roadside breath test, the police must have the device, which puts uh, a lot of uh, budgetary. Uh, pressures on police forces now across the country too. So uh, especially you know Christmas time and uh, May twenty fourth weekend and things like that, the police are stepping up their patrols for roadside uh, breath tests for impaired drivers and impaired driving detection. And uh, so all of their uh, street patrols and their units that are out in the community uh, checking on the uh, you know doing traffic safety checks and things like that. If they're demanding roadside breath tests. All those units, all those police units are going to have to have those devices. Well, and that'll be up to uh, governments then to uh, to supply the needed uh, equipment. Now, what do you make of this um, request that the premiers of Canada have made to the federal government to uh, strengthen um, bail requirements? I think what's getting lost in the... Uh in the debate here is, and I understand, you know, a lot of cases now are, are getting high-profile uh, coverage, a lot of uh, multiple shootings and uh, stabbings on transit systems, especially in the big cities, and people are being killed uh, randomly. And these are the cases that get the, the headline news, you know. And uh, but what, what's getting lost in the in the debate, I think, is that the the right to bail 
It's a constitutional right. It's enshrined in the Charter. Everyone has the right to uh, not be denied reasonable bail without just cause being shown. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to get bail. It just means you, you at, at, at a constitutional minimum, you have a right to apply for a judicial interim release. Uh, it will be up to the court to decide whether you're going to be released or not. Uh, and there are criteria set out in the criminal code uh, to, to, that the courts have to follow to, to determine if you're going to be released or not. But, I mean, there are a lot of offenses right now that, that are on the books that have a reverse onus when it comes to bail. Murder is one of those uh, uh, charges. If you're charged with uh, first-degree murder or second-degree murder in this country, uh, you're going to be held pending a bail hearing. Uh, the police do not have the power to release you. Uh, a provincial court judge does not have the power to release you. Uh, only a, a, a justice of the Superior Court of Criminal Jurisdiction uh, has the jurisdiction to to release you if you're uh, put you, you know grant you bail if you're facing a murder charge, for example. So there's a reverse onus provision there, which means that uh, if you're charged with that offence, uh, for example, that uh, it's it's uh, the burden falls on the accused to prove that he should be released. Most criminal offences including some serious ones like manslaughter, the onus is on the Crown to prove that you should be held. So if you were charged with manslaughter, just in comparison, the judge is going to release you unless the Crown shows that you should be held in custody. So, um, you know, it, it can be a pretty heavy burden for an accused to prove that he should be released. There is a persuasive burden that the, that the accused has to bring up on the court for, to, uh, for the court to, uh, to release uh, an accused charged with murder and some other offenses. But the uh, Supreme Court has also said that the uh, the right to bail has to be um, uh, is connected to the right to the presumption of innocence. So the two are not just um, in isolation here. Any, any consideration of uh, judicial interim release by a court in this country for any accused, uh, that the, the court must take into account that the accused is presumed innocent. I, I think a lot of this uh, political banter is um, is geared towards using bail or the denial of bail as punishment for even uh, hardcore recidivists, and that's not the intention of the bail system. Bail is not there to punish people who are presumptively innocent of the, of the crimes they're being accused of, right? Um, yeah, good point. Um, and and how would that uh, translate then if they are convicted? Would that be considered as time served? Well, that would be up to the judge, you know, and and sentencing is very complicated when the judges have to uh, give time, uh, you know, credits to time or time and a half or double time for time served and uh, uh, on remand, you know, waiting to go to trial and things like that. But, you know, one of the things that, that gets glossed over or ignored in these debates is that somebody who's being held who's been denied bail for whatever reason uh, they have a right to a trial, and a lot of people in this country will plead guilty to an offense, not because they are guilty, and they could actually be innocent of, of you know, I mean, you are presumed innocent, but they could actually be factually innocent of that charge, and they're going to forego their right to a trial and plead guilty, not because they are guilty, but because they want to get the hell out of the the, the horrendous uh, uh, jail system and, and, and remand system that we have in this country. The, the environment in these systems, especially in this province, at HMP and other correctional institutions, is just medieval. You know, if you were being held uh, on a charge at HMP 
and you were denied the right to, to, to bail for some reason, and the Crown offered you or anybody else or me uh, a plea deal to get, to, to get out of jail, and you've been held at HMP for a year waiting to go to trial on something, and it could be a serious matter, and, they, and, and the Crown offers you a plea deal, and you take the plea deal not because you're guilty, but because you want to get out of prison because of the environment that you're in. It's, it's just horrendous. So yeah, that, and there's no set timelines for when your case is going to be heard. Yeah, and, and, and you've got the Jordan, the Jordan application too, you know, to, to stay at proceedings if it takes too long and, and things like that. You have a right to a trial within a reasonable time. But you're, you're going to end up with people pleading guilty to things that they didn't com- for, uh, for crimes that they didn't commit, not because uh, they're guilty, but because they want to get out of prison because, because of the environment that they're in, right? Colin, uh, very interesting indeed. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks. Thank you. Have All a right. good day. Bye-bye. Bye now. Uh, and we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. Uh, we're going to go now to Rob. You're on the air. Hi, Rob. Good morning, Linda. How are you today? Oh, grand. How are you? Not so bad for a Monday morning. That's good to hear. Um, I just wanted to um, bring up, um, like, people driving around emergency vehicles when they're on the side of the road. We had an incident out here in CBS. Um, My uh, father-in-law, 87 years old, he was out for a walk with the wife, and he broke his hip. And he was on the side of the road there. So the emergency vehicles show up, and we had two fire trucks and the ambulance and everything like that. So they're taking up one side of the road. And people are still driving through, like it's only a 40-kilometer-hour way but people are still driving through at 50 or whatever like that i was out there flagging people down telling people to slow down there was almost another rear end from some missus who flew up somebody's butt because he slowed down um i i just don't understand the idea like you see all these lights flash and everything like that like slow down like you don't need to be traveling at 100 kilometers an hour it's frightening, isn't it? I don't know what uh, what people are thinking when they're seeing that and they're zooming up to these scenes with the lights flashing and everything. We all know what the rule is. You have to slow down and you have to give those emergency responders space. So, of course, in order to do that, you really have to slow down and ease your way around the site. That's right, because they, they got to go from both sides of the vehicle. So they're coming out into traffic like I was out there helping flagging and everything like that, slowing people down. But people were still just flying up on it, and it's like there's no reason for it. Slow down, and that's why half the accidents happen. People are just traveling too fast and not paying attention to what's going on, and it just drives me nuts. And, of course, your anxiety level had to be higher because you're dealing with a loved one who is in pain and perhaps still on the ground. I'm not sure what the situation is there. And these vehicles, if, if there was another crash, I mean, everybody is jeopardized by that. Yes, exactly. Like he was, he was lying on the ground on the side of the road. And it's just, it's just frustrating to see people not caring, you know, like if it was their loved one on the side of the road, I'm sure they'd want uh, to have, you know, everybody slowing right down and not, you know, jeopardizing anybody else's um, health or welfare. It's it's just really, really frustrating. Did the first responders have anything to say about that? I mean, they, they must see this all the time. They they didn't mention anything, and, like, there was no police on scene or anything like that. So, like, it was just a, a couple of us people who were from the community there just trying to traffic control. Um, there was no po- police presence or anything like that, and, and they didn't have enough personnel to, you know, actually have people out flagging, you know, slowing people down and that, which is, you know, a little odd, too, you know, because it was a 911 emergency call. You'd figure the police would be there, too, to 
And I know everybody's stretched thin and everything like that, so I, I'm not putting the blame out on anybody or like anything like that. But uh, yeah, people just slow down, and it doesn't matter if it's on a two-lane highway or a single-lane highway or whatever. Just slow down if you see the lights flashing. How's he doing? Um, well, he broke his hip. Um, he's had his surgery. He's out of his surgery. That went well. Um, you know, he's 87 years old, so he's uh, but he's still. Uh, Still doing okay. Good to hear. Good to hear. Uh, Rob, really appreciate this this morning. Thanks so much. Yeah, and I'd just like to throw out another little tidbit there. You know, and people throwing garbage around out of their windows and everything like that. And I know the government came up with the initiative to sugar tax and all this stuff and that. But I think they should be charging all the, like, you know, Tim Hortons and fast food restaurants and everything. Put another $20 since they've got their hands in their pockets for everything else. Throw another $20 onto a bill for cleanup and everything like that because it's just disgusting to see all the garbage and that thrown out on the side of the road you know um i bring up tim hortons because that's you see most of it it's their cups and this that and the other and all this stuff just thrown on the side of the road nobody cares or and, sometimes uh, just in the drive-thru it's really quite amazing um you're in the drive-thru and all of a sudden you see where somebody just went tip <laughs> and yes. dumped it all right there nowhere near a garbage nowhere near you, yeah. So, and, you know, and, and somebody's got to go around and pick all that stuff up, which is, you know, it's not right to begin with, you know, hang on to your, hang on to your garbage so you get home and throw it in a proper garbage free t- uh, bin. Yeah, have a little garbage uh, bag in, in your car. I do. I always have and always will. Yeah. I uh, really appreciate your call, Rob. All right, Linda. Have a good day. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to go now to, oh, here we go. <laughs> Perhaps one of the very biggest Toronto Maple Leafs fans in all of Newfoundland and Labrador, the mayor of Portobas, Brian Button. Hello. Good morning, Linda. How are you feeling this morning? Oh, I feel uh, even better this morning. Things couldn't have, I thought things were great uh, on Saturday night, but it even got better last night. How so? Well, you know, <laughs> being in, uh, you know, when we're in uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, you're either a Leafs fan, a Bruins fan, or a Habs fan, or one of the original six, uh, you know, and when you, you have a, such a all season long, you're always at each other and trying to see which team is the best. But seeing last night the, the big bad Bruins last night after having an amazing season of, uh, you know, a history-making season. Uh, they were eliminated last night, and uh, I guess that was just a little icing on the cake last night. <laughs> For sure. So, uh, Brian, what did uh, Saturday night look like in the Button household? Well, <laughs> we started off earlier. I attended the uh, very important event, uh, attending the Fireman's Banquet, and uh, having a chance to to go and uh, address the uh, our volunteer fire brigade here in town and the fine work that they do and uh, it was great to be there and I know everybody there was thinking that uh, he's up there sitting on the edge of his seat knowing the game is starting and he wants to go so I kind of left that immediately following the uh, dinner and uh, took off for uh, my cabin and uh, watched the game there and I tell you it was a uh, it was pacing from the cabin to the patio to the cabin to the patio for uh, most of the game. Do you find that, uh, you know, when, it, when the stakes are high like that, uh, do you find that uh, it, sometimes it's too intense to watch, especially when you had that tie situation? Well, you know, <laughs> it's game six. 
and uh, we all know the history and uh, how things have been going for the Leafs. Uh, you know, we got to talk about everybody the, talking about the 19 years since, uh, you know, we advanced past a, a first round series or have been able to be in round two. And, you know, that seems like a long time, but there's been a lot of times where we've been in a game six, couldn't close it out and uh, had to head for a game seven. And uh, when those type of things happen, it's, uh, you know, you're just sitting there on the edge of your seat saying, my God, if we go to a game seven, there's no way. It's, it's not going to happen again, right? Are we going to go 20 years at this? And uh, then to see overtime, I said, well, oh, my gosh, that was the part where I was spending more time going to the patio, peeking in and peeking in. And uh, once there's uh, chances, I said, it's a good test for your heart, right? For sure. Um, so uh, is it too soon to dream? Uh, are you already, you know, seeing visions no, of I sugar can't. plums in your head? or? No, I can't dream past this uh, second round. When uh, I see the uh, second round coming, you know, we just saw a team. We're going to go up against Florida. Obviously, Florida is a, is a great team uh, to put out the uh, all jokes aside to down the Boston Bruins, especially after the season and the power that they have. And to see that they're going to be facing the Leafs, you know, they're on a bit of a roll. They're on a high. Uh, the Leafs are going to have their hands full. But uh, either way, uh, if it was Florida or Boston, I believe that the Leafs have a chance. They have a great team there this year. They have a, you know, they have the nucleus to be able to do it. And uh, they got a chance to make us uh, Leaf fans who have been living in, uh, you know, trying to every year be in the brunt of every joke. Uh, they have a chance to get us a, at least a little bit closer uh, to that, uh, you know, I'm not even going to mention the word. I don't want to jinx no, anything. No, don't want to jinx it. Past, I just want to get past round two. Where uh, where do you see the biggest strength? Well, you know, we uh, one of the big things that you saw, especially in game six, was uh, we did end up with some uh, great goaltending in game six. I know it's been criticized all. Oops, we lost you. Brian, you still there? Round. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you were just talking about goaltending. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was saying all year round uh, we've been talking about goaltending, and, but in in the in the first series, I mean, goaltending was strong, especially in Game Six. I mean, you couldn't have asked for any more. So hopefully, uh, going into into Round Two, we'll get the same, uh, you know, type of goaltending that we've gotten this round. Our star players uh, seem to, you know, dig deep uh, when they had to in this series, and that's what you're going to need. It's going to need everyone stepping up, and uh, it's going to have to be a full team effort. And if they do that, uh, you know, they got the chance. They have the firepower there, and uh, if everything else can pull together, we can get some uh, sharp goaltending. You know, we got a, a strong chance uh, here because, uh, like you say, Florida is a strong team. I've watched all that series of uh, Boston and Florida. And, Florida, you know, they uh, they uh, they pulled out no stops. It was a full team effort for them, and they were coached really well. And uh, so it's uh, it's going to be a good one. Uh, there's no doubt. Well, fingers crossed. You don't have any uh, travel plans, do you? No, I'm. Uh, you know, uh, whatever goes on. You know, if I if I travel, the fire stick goes with me. So, uh, you know, you gotta you gotta plan all your meetings and plan all your things that's happening around. You know, it's game time. We gotta go. <laughs> I know. I know. During the first round, we were having a uh, having a meeting, and the game time was at nine o'clock. And uh, you know, there was a there was a lot of clock watching at that time. Everybody was looking to see what time it was. 
and uh, to to get there, we got a couple couple of Leaf fans on the uh, on the council here. So uh, most of us were a couple of us were very anxious to get home and uh, get behind that television set. Well, I can just imagine you now at the fireman's ball, you know, pacing from foot to foot to foot, <laughs> yeah. knowing yeah. how important it was to represent the town and and to recognize the 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 great work being done there, but also with your mind on other things. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, they're a very, very important group. And, uh, you know, they do some uh, fantastic work here. And especially during the times, I want to recognize that here, just especially just uh, during the times of Fiona and when Fiona hit and, uh, you know, our volunteer fire brigade went over and above here. So to be there was very important. And, uh, you know, there was a, a little bit of uh, uh, jokes knowing that, uh, you know, I wanted to, to be there for part of that game. And uh, we did get uh, get there and got there for the most important parts of it. And uh, But it was uh, nice to be there to, uh, you know, thank them uh, as well. Well, Mayor Brian Button, I uh, wish all the best to you and all the other Leafs fans in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, You probably know who I root for. I'm not going to mention the name right now because you'll probably say something about it. But anyway, I wish you all the best. All right, Linda. Appreciate you calling. And it's a go Leafs go. So we got to pull together, Leaf Nation. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Is it uh, too soon to start dreaming? I know that uh, Leafs fans everywhere don't want to get too far ahead of themselves because they've been uh, disappointed before. Could this be the year? Anyway, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Uh, Just before news time, and uh, very, very quickly now, we're going to uh, check in with uh, the MHA from Mount Pearl Southlands, Paul Lane. And I know, Paul, we're almost up to news time, so I just wanted to say a quick hello, and we can come back to you after the news. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic, and uh, I, I, I too, am a member of the Leafs Nation. I've been, uh, last time they won a Stanley Cup was the year I was born, 1967. I've been waiting my whole life to see one, and who knows, maybe this will be the year. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, so what, what did you want to raise this morning? Uh, well, I wanted to have a chat about the budgetary process. So if we are up against news, uh, I, I can certainly wait, but... Uh, I will say uh, I will say that I just saw the news release come across from uh, an announcement that was just made uh, with the federal minister responsible for infrastructure and the premier and Seamus and uh, looks like uh, Team Guju Highway is going to happen. Um, very glad to hear it. they're going to be doing some twin uh, more twinning of the Trans Canada Highway, which is great. But uh, also in the release, it said that they're going to be. Uh, uh, that the Team Guju Highway is going to be uh, moving forward, and I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, uh, of course, it uh, you know it's part of uh, the larger east-west arterial that's been on the go for quite some time, uh, done in phases, of course, and uh, meant to route traffic from the west end and from the southern shore uh, down back and forth to the east end. Uh, of course, uh, where the Team Guju uh, currently sits. It's pouring all that traffic uh, down into residential areas on Park Avenue, Smallwood Drive, and so on, creating a lot of congestion for residents and uh, safety concerns. So uh, something that I've certainly been pushing and others, and I know uh, my colleague Lucy Stoyles has as well, and uh, glad to hear that that's uh, finally on the agenda to get done. All right. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that and uh, the budgetary process, as you put it, after news uh, with Jolene Grimes. Uh, uh, We'll be back straight back to you. I'm putting you back on hold. Sure. All righty. And uh, we'll hear from Paul Lane now in a moment. Uh, Now we're up to news time with Jolene Grimes. 
Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we're back. And uh, just before the break, we were speaking with uh, the MHA from Mount Pearl Southlands. And the uh, we, we started by talking about this announcement that was made just moments ago, a joint investment more than $306 million from the federal and provincial governments announced today to expand uh, the Trans-Canada Highway by adding two additional divided highway sections. The twinning project will include 15 kilometers between Bishop's Falls and Grand Falls, Windsor, and another 40 kilometers of highway uh, west of Whitburn. Uh, so that will come as, um, I guess... Um a welcome news to many drivers. Uh, they're also going to be uh, providing money for uh, 15 kilometers of passing lanes to allow for continuous passing uh, for the first 30 kilometers leaving Port of Basque to allow for more efficient uh, traffic flow during peak um, traffic periods, especially uh, with when the ferry is disembarking. And uh, the provincial government also moving forward with uh, the completion of the Team Guju Highway and has submitted an application to the federal government to take the next stage on the project. So nothing um, particularly solid there on the Team Guju, um, Paul? Well, uh, no. Uh, the, the actual money that was announced uh, this morning, um, as you say, is for the Trans-Canada Highway. Uh, but uh, obviously, you know, the Premier has said now that the application has finally gone in. Um for the completion of the Team Guju Highway. So I'm very hopeful now that uh, we're going to see some movement sooner, sooner rather than later. As I said, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, for people in the region um, that, uh, that, that utilize these roads now, uh, obviously it's an important piece of infrastructure for them. And it's not just the people in St. John's and Mount Pearl, certainly, uh, but uh, all up the whole southern shore uh, that, that, that would utilize this infrastructure uh, to get to the east end uh, of the city. And as I say, right now, it is causing problems for the residential areas in Mount Pearl, particularly the Park Avenue Smallwood Drive area, because all the traffic coming off Team Guju is now pouring onto uh, Park Avenue. And uh, and, that's, and that was never uh, built, uh, you know, for that type of traffic. It's uh, it's residential area. And so it's causing safety concerns and, and a lot of congestion uh, during peak time. So... Um, you know, it's something that, uh, that that myself and I know Lucy have been uh, working hard to try to uh, push this agenda to get it on the radar. And um, for the longest time, there was no application. Now there's an application gone in. So I'm hopeful that uh, we're going to see some movement sooner rather than later, as I said on this. Are you disappointed, uh, though, that uh, there wasn't a more uh, definitive announcement on the Team Guja? Well, naturally, Tim, uh, I would have loved to have. Uh, I would have loved to have seen the release to say that, uh, yeah, that the money is uh, approved and they're going to start. Uh, you know, a contract's going to be less uh, immediately uh, or, or very shortly. Uh, obviously, that would be what I would want to see. Um, so I suppose I'm a little disappointed in that regard. But the bottom line is, is that up until now, there had been no commitment um, and no application. Uh, now the province, the premier, has come out publicly and said that it's going to be done, and the application has been submitted. Uh, so I can only, uh, I guess, hope and, and uh, surmise that that's going to happen uh, sooner rather than later. 
and uh, obviously it uh, would be an important political uh, announcement, certainly for Minister O'Regan in his district, I think, to get that done would be in his interest, and and uh, so uh, I got a feeling we're going to see it happen, and, and uh, um, like I say, sooner the better. Now, that's not why you called. It just happened to happen as you were on the line. Uh, you were calling about uh, the budgetary process. Yes, I, I, I wanted to talk about it. This is something now I've raised now uh, for quite some time, usually once a year around budget time. Uh, I have a discussion with Patty, so I want to raise it again because it still hasn't been uh, done. Um, then the for, for the information, I guess, of people who may be listening, because I know, like, when people think about the budgets, usually what you know what they picture in their mind is they'll picture the Minister of Finance up reading a budget document, and of course, then the you know there will be a whole event around it, and the media will be there, and they'll be highlighting some of the points that are made in, in the budget in terms of what what's read. But the budget process itself and passing a budget is much more complex than simply what the finance minister reads on uh, budget day. And there's an exhaustive process of debate that that takes place on the budget before it can be passed. Uh, The most valuable part of that debate, I would argue, is what's known as the estimates process. And I don't want to bore everybody to death now, but but to try to just, you know, uh, for people to understand what that means, is that the estimates process is where... um, there are three-hour allotments where each minister, each minister of each department, will come before members of the House of Assembly, and members and the minister will have with him or her all of the deputy ministers, assistant deputy ministers, and other key officials within the department with them, and they will sit in the House on one side. And on the other side, you will have some members of the House Assembly on the uh, Budget Estimates Committee, and they will be questioned by opposition members, questioned line by line. So if you can picture a budget, for example, um, you know, uh, you go through each department, and there will be a line-by-line examination. Things like, you know, last year you budgeted a million dollars for salaries. Um, You only spent $800,000 of the million how come you didn't spend a whole million? And they might come back and say, well, we had positions that were not filled. Okay, well, this year you're looking for $1.2 million. Why is that? Oh, because we're planning on hiring two or two or, you know, so many more staff. Well, who are these staff that you're hiring? Why are you hiring? What will they be doing? So it's a line-by-line to understand exactly how the people's money is being spent. And that's staffing, it's consultants, it's office fees. It even comes down to photocopying in the minister's office, Okay just to understand how how much money is being spent, line by line. Very important to understand. The problem we have with the process, though, is that, and I'm just going to use the Department of Health as an example. Uh, it's, not, it's not just in the Department of Health, but I'll just use it as an example. In the budget for the Department of Health, we're going to have members that are going to uh, look at the budget for the minister's office, and we're going to ask, a, we're going to ask questions about office supplies and photocopying expenses, as an example, basically counting, uh, you know, we're not counting paper clips, but that's just how I, I phrase it, I suppose. But at the same time that we're questioning a variance of a few thousand dollars on office supplies, we're simply passing right over a budget line that would say uh, somewhere between 2 and $3 billion to health authorities and moving on. 
So there is no. The point is, is that there is no opportunity, and I just use the health authority to question anybody about how that money is being spent, and that's billions of dollars. So the same thing is happening with the Newfoundland and Labrador uh, Liquor Corporation. Same thing is happening. What's happening with the the school boards? Um, same thing was happening with uh, Nelcor. Um, and so on. So you have all these government agencies, boards, and commissions, and that's where the bulk of the public money is being spent. And as I say, we'll be questioning the different ministers about the office expenses in their office while the billions of dollars of public money that's being spent is just being passed and not being questioned, no ability to question the, the, the details around how that money is being spent. So one of the things that I've been pushing for in the name of transparency and good stewardship of the public purse is to introduce a process into the budgetary process every year whereby we could have, you know, and and again, we'll just use the healthcare authority or we could use um, um, the liquor corporation, we could use an Alcor and so on, where senior officials would sit across from members of the House Assembly likewise with their budgets and we could do some line-by-line examinations to understand how they are spending literally billions of taxpayers' dollars, which is not happening right now. Now, arguably, you might say, well, they have an independent board of directors and so on that run them. These are just people who are appointed by the government. I'm not knocking these people or their credentials. They're all fine people, I'm sure. But those people were not elected by the people of Newfoundland and Labrador to manage the affairs of the province. That's what MHAs were elected to do. And we don't have that, in, uh, that that oversight by the House of Assembly when it comes to our agencies, boards, commissions. And that's something that I feel needs to change. Well, that's all supposed to be reviewed. Uh, what do you think is going to happen there? Well, see, the thing is, here's the thing. Uh, I brought that up in a couple of, uh, couple of budgets ago. The minister said um, that, uh, uh, said, uh, she even said, that the member from Mount Pearl Southland will be very happy to hear this because he's been talking about this and we're going to do it. We're going to make it happen. Nothing happened. Uh, again this year, nothing happened. I asked a question about the House Assembly and now she's saying, well, really it needs to go to the House Assembly Management Commission to, you know, to figure out how that she still supports the concept, but it would be up to the Management Commission to decide how that might be done. So I guess I'm going to have to write the management commission now uh, i'll play the game but at the end of the day uh government controls the management commission the same as it controls every other committee of the house assembly they have the majority so you know i i, I can play the game of you know I, I can write the management commission and ask the same thing that i asked in the house assembly uh if that's what you know if that's what we want to do but at the end of the day, like I say, the government controls the Management Commission and every other committee, and they have the ability to make it happen themselves. They don't need me to write them a letter to ask the same thing that I just asked in the House of Assembly, the same thing that I've brought up over and over again. If the political will is there to do it and to have that process so that we understand how all these agencies, boards, commissions are spending billions of taxpayers' dollars, 
then they have the ability to do it and they can do it if the political will is there and they should do it. That's one level of accountability, but I know one of the recommendations of the Green Report was uh, greater accountability for -for not-for-profits, many of which uh, receive government money to deliver programs that some might argue should be delivered by government itself. So um, where are we with that process as well? Uh, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, when a non when a non for profit um, receives government funding and so on, that I think that they do have a process, you know, where they ha- would have to submit <coughs> financials and so on of the organization before a government will approve funding. So there is, you know, there there, there is a a process for that. Um, you know, could it be better? Per- perhaps so. At the end of the day, though, the amount of money that we're talking in terms of uh, non-profit grants really is what we're talking about is a drop in the bucket it's uh, i mean it's still important it's taxpayers money don't get me wrong but it's minuscule compared to the literally billions of dollars that are spent that that, that annually go through the abcs of government primarily healthcare, but also like i say uh, you know, school boards, liquor corporation, uh, Nelcor, Hydro. Um, the others are escaping me now, but there are, there are, there are others as well. Um, you know, that's really where the bulk of the taxpayers' money is going through those organizations, particularly health. And um, like I say, we're not we're we're not doing a thorough enough job, in my opinion of having full disclosure, transparency, and having elected members of the House understand how those dollars are being spent. Uh, as you say, some money goes to, uh, in by the form of uh, operating grants and so on, uh, to some non-for-profits, but the amount is very, very, generally speaking, it's, you know, we're talking small amounts of money, uh, comparatively speaking. Paul Lane, we have to leave it there. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Always a pleasure. And I'll just end off by saying uh, so glad to hear that the uh, Peace Act strike is open, uh, is over. Um, obviously, uh, uh, obviously, the collective bargaining process worked uh, as it should. It's too bad that uh, people did end up out for uh, a couple of weeks, but certainly I have a lot of constituents and friends and family members who were directly involved and glad they're able to get back to work. And hopefully whatever is holding up um, the other group with the CRA, hopefully that that can get resolved uh, very soon as well and they can uh, get back to work so they can earn a living and support their families and support the economy as they've always done. Appreciate your time, Paul. Thanks. Thank you, Linda. All the best. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. Lindy is next. Hello, Lindy. Good morning. How are you this morning? Oh, if it got any better, I wouldn't know what to do with it. There you go. Yeah, last and last. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but I had to disagree with what you were saying this morning with the with the with the weather. How so? Because you said it was uh, it was uh, miserable here in Newfoundland today. Oh well, it's miserable yeah, on Camo Road anyway. On the east coast, you said in Newfoundland they, here on the west coast today the sun is shining, blue sky, and right now it's eight degrees. It's creeping up there. <laughs> As uh, Sarah Snow said, the West Coast is the West Coast. The West Coast is the best coast. 
That's right. That's what she said. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so you got some well, sunshine. That's tantalizing. Sorry? I say, if you're looking for good weather, come on out. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, uh, I mean... We haven't seen anything else, only sunshine. That's all we've seen. Is that right? That's, that is absolutely right. We haven't seen one peck of rain. That, is, that, that one stain. Oh, wow. That's great. No, well, we'll see it. I mean, you guys on the East Coast are, are wild in sunshine. We'll be down up to our eyeballs in water. There you go. <laughs> I, I, that, that's, that's the way it usually goes. Is that right? So it, it reverses every now and again. It reverses. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, um, Corner Brooken area has received some pretty extreme weather in recent years. Uh, it has, yes. No, not no, not Cornerbrook. Actually, there hasn't been much around here, not for me to remember. No, uh, you had some I mean, pretty bad flooding there four. a couple of years ago. Say that again. You had some pretty bra- bad flooding a couple of years ago. Uh, you don't get no floods here, Cornerbrook. Oh, very good. It's all hills. Yeah. <laughs> water, water runs down the wa- hill. Wa- washouts and that, yeah. Yeah. Well, Lindy, I appreciate your call this morning. Thanks so much. Yeah, because, uh, uh, you know, it's, when you say that, I mean, it's heard everywhere, and you're saying it's really bad. It's not fit in Newfoundland. You know? No, I, I, that's not fair of me, and I, I appreciate being called upon, uh, uh, up on it. I hadn't looked at the entire forecast, so I really do appreciate right. that. And if you're looking for some uh, elusive sunshine, uh, us East Coasters, head west. Yes, head west. All right, Lindy, thanks so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. We are going to go now to Dr. James Westhuizen. Hello, Dr. Westhuizen. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? You did a pretty good job with that one. That's a beautiful Dutch name. <laughs> well, yeah, it's South African originally, actually. But ah. yeah, probably a little bit of Dutch in there. I yeah. Lovely. So how are you doing today? Great. And yourself? I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I'm trying to battle a system here that is uh, like in, set up to try and torture us or rat us, but I mean, that's oh. the whole part of it, I guess. Okay, well, tell us more. Well, um, just to, just to um, for, for, for people who never heard me before, because I was on with um, Patty a couple of times in the last week or so, um, I've been practicing in Newfoundland for about 30 years now, and I'm currently in a, in a fee-for-service practice in St. John's, you know, close to the village mall. Um, and basically, you know, what I've been calling in a couple of times about this, it was about the MCP audit system. And the way the MCB audit system is set up is like they will audit. Like I get audited now on a daily basis with um, chronic disease management. And basically what that means is um, if I provide a service to one of my patients where I spend 15 minutes with them, I can bill a fee that gives me $7 more than a telephone call visit. Right? Now, you know that no, no telephone call visit is, is 15 minutes. They're usually like in 90 seconds or 2 minutes or 3 minutes or whatever it is. Um, but if I dare bill 15, every single chronic disease management 127 code for $7 more th- th- um, than a phone call when I spend 15 minutes with my patients, they will get audited. Um, I'll send in my notes because I have clinic notes because I, you know, I write I handwritten notes because I'm old. Um, I'll send it in. They won't, I presume they don't even look at it, but they'll adjust my fee code. I won't get paid for it. And 
and they'll escalate my audits because this is a one-sided thing. I have no input. I have no right to any input. My patients have no right to any input. It's just one-sided. I just don't get paid for a period, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I have a little bit of a problem with that. I'd actually like for, you know, the people who are listening across Newfoundland and Labrador um, who go to see their own doctor, I'd like for people to ask their doctors if they've ever built um, the code where a doctor will spend 15 minutes with them in the office. And like I said, like you get paid 6 or $7 more than a telephone call visit. Now, I'm willing to bet that all of those doctors will say to them, no, I don't dare build that because it will get flagged and they will take off the fee code um, and they'll escalate my audit and, I, and it might make me feel like a villain, which these physicians are not villains. So basically the way that the, that the MCP audit is set up is to only allow you to build for lesser quality services. If you want to, if you want to provide a higher quality service, you're not allowed to build for it for whatever reason, and I'm not quite sure why that is. And we don't have any input in that. And my voice is not going to make any difference because no one is really listening to me. But I'm saying this to the to to, to all the patients in Newfoundland and Labrador. If you want the right for a doctor to spend 15 minutes with you in the office, for him to make a decision to spend that time for you if he deems it necessary, you need you need to make your voices heard because otherwise this service will go away. Someone like me, I provide that service once a day, once or twice a day. I'll spend 15 minutes with someone, and I'll build a one to seven code, which gives me $7 or $6 or more than a telephone call visit. And I get audited every single day. Without my input, they'll just adjust it. Um, people need to make their voices heard if they want the service protected. Um, you, you have to call MCP audits, and you have to ask them permission for your doctor to spend 15 minutes with you. And by the way, no one at MCP audits are, are physicians. They all... Um, staff that have other qualifications. And I have no problem with that. I just don't see why someone who doesn't have a medical degree should dictate to me how I should practice medicine. Is that a part of the problem that's inherent in this fee-for-service model? Well, that's why people are leave, leaving the province, and more people will be leaving the province. I mean, I myself is like, you know, you know, if, 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 if someone needs 15 minutes spent with them, Right, and you sit there and you spend 15 minutes with someone. You write in your notes. All my notes are legitimate. I'm, I, I challenge anyone in government to go to MCP audits and look at my notes, which they have a record of, and ask them why I wasn't paid for those services, and let them explain it to me. You don't have to explain it to me, but explain it to someone in government, because MCP audits are wrong. They're absolutely 100% wrong, and there's no oversight over MCP audits. Or, well, I, absolutely, I, I'm saying this wrong because apparently MCP audits are telling my patients that they that they don't have any control over this. It's the computer because we have this rogue computer who's making all the decisions and apparently this computer can read my handwriting and it has a degree in medicine so it can decide what I need to get paid or not and the computer makes all the decisions while the staff are getting paid to look at the computer. Apparently it's something like that that's happening in that system. Right, so they've got this very black and white system set up that doesn't account for the subtleties involved in medical practice. Well, I've actually had some of my patients call into MCP audits and ask them permission for, uh, for them to come back to spend 15 minutes with me and MCP audits will tell them that well it's not up to them the doctor makes the decision so that patient will come back to me I'll spend the 15 minutes with him I'll build a fee that is seven dollars more than the phone call visit and it will get like an adjusted uh, uh, and my my um, audits will get escalated like I said I got more than 200 audits sitting right there next to my secretary that they were all adjusted for no for no valid reason and I have no I have no I have no right and and any input in this matter does the blended capitation system that they're introducing uh, address any of that? 
Um, I'm not quite sure what that address is and how it's going to work, but the, the, the problem is not the blended capitation. It's not the way that physicians work. The problem is the way that the system is set up for people to... I mean, I have no problem getting audited, but auditing me consistently for no valid reason, I have a big problem with that. Let, let's, just, let's just go to something else, because I was talking about chronic disease management, and I really wanted to talk about home visits as well, um, because that's another... There's two things I get audited on, um, and MCP audits have said that the computer makes the decisions completely random. It's not completely random because I get audited on two fee codes and two fee codes only. The one is chronic disease management, which I bill for $6 or $7 more than a phone call visit. And the other one is if I do a home visit, um, now you get two kinds of home visits, elective and non-elective. Non-elective is when the patient calls you and you go and see the patient at home. Now, before 6 p.m., those two home visits, you get paid the same rate. However, if I go between 6 p.m. and midnight, someone calls me to go and see them or their family member or the mom or dad at home, and I drive to get in my vehicle to drive someone's house, I bill a fee code, a 249 code, which gives me $25 extra. For me to go after the sun goes down to someone's house, I get paid $25 extra. Now, apparently that, that's a big problem because I'm this big villain for even daring to bill that. Every single time, if I dare bill 1249 code for me getting $25 extra to go to someone's house, it gets audited. They'll take off the $25, so I won't get paid the $25 extra, and I get flagged for wrongful billing, which is completely ridiculous. Why is that then? Well, that's the way MCP audits are set up. But just let me explain to you what, what I've done throughout the pandemic. Right When the pandemic kicked in, which was in 2020, you know, people were fearful of leaving their homes. I mean, people were ended up in, what was it, April, May 2020, people ended up in emergency departments and the ICUs, and, you know, people were getting really sick. And people were terrified. I mean, the province shut down in May 2020. So what I did is I offered a service to some of my patients. They were terrified of leaving their homes, older people specifically, because 90% of people I do home visits on are older than 75 years of age. So I offered a service to go and see people if they needed me to come see them, and I started doing home visits, and it started getting legs, and more people wanted them, people talked to each other, and they asked me to come see them. So then comes about a year later, MCP audits start getting on my case, because apparently I was doing home visits after hours for my convenience. The fact that I was filling the 249 code, which gives me $25 extra after 6 p.m. to get in my vehicle to drive to someone's house, apparently I was just doing this. I was waiting for the sun to go down just to go and see people for my convenience. Oh, I see. So they thought you were taking advantage of that. Right. And I'm in the office every day, all day long. So the only time, and all my patients knew, the only time that I could go and see them was after hours. Right? So anyway, um, but because of the fact that I wasn't allowed to do these home visits after hours for $25 extra, I changed to our way I practice medicine. So I'm not practicing medicine the way that I think I should practice it. I'm practicing medicine the way that MCP audits wants me to do it, and none of them are doctors. So in 2022, January 2022, I changed the whole way I practice medicine. Now I leave my office at 3 o'clock every day, and I do as many home visits as I can before the sun goes down. Because if I do it after the sun goes down, you know, I'm this big villain, right? Um, the problem with that is now the schools come out at 3 o'clock, so kids are getting sick and kids are falling down, they're hurting themselves. Parents are calling my office looking for me with the doctor to come see the kids. Well, he's not, he's not there. He's gallivanting around the city doing a home visit because he's not allowed to do it after hours because he does it for his own convenience, apparently, right? 
no matter what my family thinks. I mean, I never see. Well, I don't even take, just so you know, I don't even take a supper break in the evening because that's an hour that I can do home visits on that, God forbid, if I take a supper break and I do home visits after hours and build $25 extra, I'm this big villain. So now I have my supper every single night, probably 11 o'clock in the night on, because I don't get home before 10 o'clock. So let's just talk about this home visit thing. So in 2022, I did about 3,000 home visits. Okay, so 90% of people that I see at home are older than 75 years of age. So I did about 3,000 home visits. I do home visits Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I do some uh, on the weekends um, outside of the city, areas that I can't reach during the week. So if, if you do the math, you know, four days a week, 52 weeks a year, that's 200 days. And I did 3,000 home visits. That means it's about 15 home visits a day. It is impossible, it's humanly impossible to do that many home visits before the sun goes down. If I leave my office at 3 o'clock, it's impossible to do that before the sun goes down. Which means, logically, that I work late into the night time, which I do. I don't get home until 10 o'clock in the night time. So this is what I did in 2022. I built most of those home visits, probably 99% of them. I built for the daytime rate, the 246 code, which is $25 less. But because I was working every night till 10 o'clock in the night time, I allowed myself one home visit a week that I would build for the 249 code, which pays me the extra $25. So I built 52. It could be 48, it could be 54, 55, whatever, but it's very close to 52. So I built for the 249 code. That's for me getting in my vehicle after the sun has gone down to provide a service to someone at their home, right? I built 52 out of the 3,000. Every single one of them got audited. They took off the $25 and flagged me for wrongful billing, which proves the point that there is absolutely nothing that I can do that is right. Everything I'm doing apparently is wrong. And the same with chronic disease management. Wow. If I dare build chronic disease management, it will get flagged immediately. They'll take off the fees, and I won't get paid for it, and I get flagged for wrongful billing. I'm not doing wrongful billing. I'm the guy who was in the office every single day throughout the pandemic. Even when the province was in shutdown, I was going with a mask and a shield doing home visits. And I'm saying this in open line. You can ask my patient. Let my patient call in and tell you what I was doing throughout the pandemic. And I'm the one that they want to flag for wrongful billing. Now, we're talking about $6 more than a phone call visit. We're talking about $25 more than a daytime rate for me to go after hours, get in my vehicle, provide a service to someone's home. But we had, um, you know, the minister came in around Christmas time and he said, well, we need family doctors to open up a practice in, in St. John's. And if you do so, and you commit to staying for a year, and you go and sit behind a desk and you haven't seen one patient yet, we'll give you a check of $150,000. Now, I'm not asking for no bonuses or $150,000, but my God, if I'm billing 6 or $7 more than a phone call visit to provide a service, or I'm billing $25 more than a daytime rate to go around in the nighttime providing a service to people, you know, I mean, really? This is what they're going to do to physicians who are actually working in, 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 in Newfoundland and Labrador. It doesn't make any sense. Dr. Je- uh, James Westeisen, I really appreciate this uh, perspective. Uh, I'd like to hear what the NLMA has to say about it. Um, are you well, aware of any other doctors uh, well, you know, encountering NL- similar problems? Well, the NL- NLMA told some of my patients that they have no input in the matter because the MCP audit system is government-run and they have absolute power. So the NLMA have told me that basically you're on your own. You have to work with MCP audits because we have no power over it. And I have no power over MCP audits because 
There is no input. There is no review process. It is their way or the highway. They will change my fees unilaterally without talking to me and without talking to my patient, and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it, and that's wrong. Now, just just so you know, what do I do when I do home visits? Like I said, I see 90% of people I see older than 75 years of age, right? I've had patients in my practice that I haven't seen in my office in the last four years that I've gone to see at home that are older than 75 that I've diagnosed with some type of a cancer, got them in for treatment for various surgical procedures, uh, various um, you know, specialist physicians, and got them in to have the uh, uh, um, chemotherapy and radiation. They finish with it, the cancer is cured, and they live a good quality of life. That's what I do. I provide end-of-life care. I try and keep, keep my patients at home with their, with their loved ones, you know, up until as close to the end of life as I possibly can, just so they don't lie in palliative care for eight months at a time. You know, I, I provide service. I provide mental health to older patients, patients into the 90s. Some people, they don't see any face but for mine. I go in there and make sure they eat and drink and take the medications on. But for that, apparently I'm doing these home visits for my convenience. That's what I was told. Wow, it's uh, it's really eye-opening. Uh, Dr. James Westeisen, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. Alrighty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, when uh, we come back, we hope to hear from you. We're up to break time. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. Of course, uh, this is May the 1st. Hard to imagine that May, it's May already. Uh, April felt like it just uh, flew by, didn't it? Just flick. Uh, May Day, of course, marked around the world. May the 1st as a celebration of labor rights. But today's rallies are tapping into broader frustrations at the state of the world. People squeezed by inflation and demanding economic justice, hitting the streets in a global outpouring of worker discontent, not seen since before the pandemic sent the world into lockdowns, according to this story on the uh, Canadian Newswire. Uh, French unions pushing the president in that country to scrap a higher retirement age. South Koreans pleading for higher wages and migrant domestic workers in Lebanon marched in a country plunged excuse me, in economic crisis. France is expecting its biggest May Day demonstrations in years as unions march against President Emmanuel Macron's recent move to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. So a lot going on on this May Day. May Day, of course, used to be that big show of Soviet uh, communist might. Remember all the pictures of the big parades through Red Square and all that sort of thing? That's uh, died down, of course, in recent years, um, uh, but uh, it uh, it lives on with um, a lot of these uh, labor-related um, activities that are taking place. Well, uh, the reason why I'm a little bit distracted is because I'm looking at the smiling face of VOCM's Richard Duggan. Hello. Hello, Linda. So you were at this big announcement this morning. Now, we were expecting, mm-hmm. you and I, we talked about this. Yep. Uh-oh, here we go. This is the Team Guju extension, but it's not. It, it's not, but it is kind of. It's, so the federal government has committed to the Team Guju extension, but there's no money allotted. They still got to make the applications for it. So 
take that for what you will. The The commitment is there, but the money is not as of yet. So that's sort of where that stands. The announcement today was more was more about um, the highways in um, the Whitburn area leading out towards Central, though that was sort of the main crux of today's announcement. And that's great news mm-hmm. because I've often heard and I've thought myself as I'm driving along the highway and, uh, and you pass by uh, Whitburn and all of a sudden you're into the two-lane highway from the, from the four-lane mm-hmm. highway and you, all of a sudden you're like, oh, Right. Yeah. And I, I travel out to that area uh, pretty frequently. We have some family out there and it is a little bit jarring if, if you're not prepared for it and you're driving down that, you know, the traditional four lane highway and then all of a sudden it converges down to two. It is sort of a difference. And, uh, you know, my from what I've seen when I'm when we're driving out there, you know, is that the speed limit reduces to 70 in that area. But not a whole lot of people actually go down to 70. More people are still going 190 kilometers an hour, which poses some, you know, um, safety issues as you're driving down that highway, especially without that divide there. So um, some good news, hopefully, for uh, people who, you know, travel that uh, stretch of highway frequently and to the stretch of highway out uh, near Grand Falls, Windsor, as well as getting some upgrades. Yeah, so I understand 40 kilometers beyond Whitburn. Mm-hmm. So taking you closer toward into the Trinity Bay area. Yep. Um, and how many kilometers in around between Bishops and, and Grand Falls, Windsor? Is it 15? 15 kilometers between Bishops Falls and Grand Falls, Windsor as well. So um, I, I'm not as familiar with that area of the province. But again, um, Transportation Minister Elvis Lovelace did say today that, you know, that is his area and you know they've had some pretty serious accidents there in recent years so um, they're hoping that that will help um, with the safety aspect as well and hopefully reduce and ideally eliminate those types of accidents from happening. Very, very busy part of um, uh, the Trans-Canada across Newfoundland and Labrador, of course, in around Grand Falls, Windsor. And I think it's one of the few places where the Trans-Canada actually intersects the town. Mm -hmm. Um, Most most times in Clarenville and Whitburn, it goes sort of past the town. I know there's a lot of businesses along those stretches of highway, of course. Um, But um, in Grand Falls, Windsor, it actually goes right through Mm -hmm. the community. Um, So uh, that's very interesting. And passing lanes uh, at Port of Basque. Yes. So uh, $20 million is going towards um, passing lanes towards Port of Basque. So that's 15 kilometers of the passing lane to allow for uh, continu- a continuous passing lane for the first 30 kilometers leaving Port of Basque. And uh, government says that this will allow traffic to flow more efficiently during peak periods. And of course, we know how important um, highways in that area are, especially after last year with, uh, with Fiona and and everything that happened there and of course even going back to uh, the early days of the pandemic where the focus was really put on the supply line um, supply lines uh, coming out of Port of Bass from the ferry area so any improvements to the highway there I'm sure will be very welcomed as well for sure and uh, when the premier said uh, stay tuned when it came to mm-hmm. the two- team Gujo I guess that remains the same today stay tuned yes um, they said that they're you know they have to um, well, in the scrum afterwards, uh, his words to us were that the federal government has to cross the T's and dot the I's with this. And he seemed to hint that um, more 
information would be coming sooner rather than later. So hopefully, um, and, and I know that m me and you, we both drive that stretch of highway every day coming to and from work. So um, there is a lot of traffic uh, that goes through that area. I know that when they first opened it up and I was getting used to driving it the first time, I said, okay, this is pretty quiet. And over the years, there's been a steady increase in traffic. And um, the few times when I've had to go down to where it ends right now at Topsail Road, um, typically at the end of the day, 4, 35 o'clock, there's a pretty big backlog of traffic looking to get off that section of highway. And um, Mount Pearl Mayor Dave Aker was at the announcement this morning. And, you know, they were talking about how that's causing congestion issues for Mount Pearl because where that highway ends now they're sort of going down onto what is typically a residential area of mount pearl is where that traffic is being filtered if they don't go on the topsail road so uh lots of people in mount pearl looking forward to that highway being completed just for the fact that it's going to alleviate some of those traffic some of the traffic congestion in their neighbor neighborhoods and that's very true anybody who's traveled through that area knows how busy mount pearl can be that section of topsail mm -hmm. road you always see backlogs there always, always. Mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's pretty much every day any like i don't think think there's been a day where I've tri been traveling either up Topsail Road or on the Team Guju Highway where there haven't been there hasn't been a backlog of traffic in some way shape or form um, so I, again, as you said, stay tuned, I guess, in terms of uh, when this work is going to be done. But uh, everyone down there today, it's, that's the feeling I got was that this is going to be coming sooner rather than later. So um, hopefully because, again, uh, you know, the, the current uh, stretch of the highway, that was... Um, opened up in 2018 so it's been almost five years so I, I think people and I asked the question today actually you know um, the commitments there but the money is not and the premier was pretty adamant in that no this work is going to get done now because I know that some people might look at that and go hold on now, it's been five years now the commitments there the commitments been there since that old um, um, section was open so is it really? But he seemed to be pretty adamant today that, yes, this work is going to move forward and it is going to get done. All right. Well, uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. What's on tap today? You're heading back to the House of Assembly? Yes, I will be back in the House of Assembly this afternoon. Um, and we seen last week, you know, we, we were talking about uh, going back out into the House and we were expecting things to be raucous right from the start. You know, we were just getting off the uh, the two-week Easter break, so we expected uh, everyone to be firing on all cylinders, and it seemed almost like a, a slow start. But by the time we got to last Thursday, things were sort of, sort of starting to heat heat up a bit. There were a bit more lively exchanges, so we'll see what today brings. Um, and again, uh, the big issues, of course, um, still ring true in terms of uh, health care being the top issues, uh, cost of living. And of course, I'm sure today there will be some highway questions thrown in there as well, especially as we were just discussing uh, with the commitment, but not the money for the Team Guju Highway. Um, and that was, uh, we referenced earlier, the stay tuned. That was the comment from Andrew Fury last week when Paul Lane asked a question about the Team Guju Highway. Um, so there will be lots on tap and uh, I understand you will be in for news talk this afternoon, so we'll be able to break some of that down. Uh, today at four o'clock absolutely so we'll keep you all informed of what happens throughout the course of the day and it's a busy busy news day so uh richard doug and i appreciate you, appreciate you taking this time <laughs> with me to inform our listeners about the latest that's going on thanks Th so much thank you very much linda uh vocm's richard duggan ladies and gentlemen hey <laughs> fellow habs fan <laughs> we're not in it this year ricky that's it we're done uh oh he's coming back <laughs>
Come, okay, yeah, I have to come back for a second just because, yes, my heart is broken that the Habs are not in the, uh, in the, in the Stanley Cup Finals this year, but um, I got to say, Toronto, I didn't oh, think. Man. Oh, you know, man. You know, you got you to gotta give it to them. I'll give them credit. Yeah, that was I, I'm an a little bit, game. I'm a little bit sad that uh, I think I'm, I'm more sad about the fact that they were able to beat Tampa Bay and we couldn't. <laughs> that's, that's the thing for me. Like, okay, they're great. They moved on to the second round, but they beat Tampa Bay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> no, but well done. And, yes. You know, I have very, uh, I'm related to a lot of them. I uh, have very great, good friends who are uh, Leafs fans. And to see that slump in their shoulders every season, it's good to see them on their tiptoes and bouncing around and having a great time. Yeah, I, I sent out a few texts on uh, Saturday night to a few of my Leafs friends, buddies. Who, and I was like, hey, they actually did it. Right. So <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. And um I guess, too, for it, there is a little bit of a silver lining for us Habs fans, though, I guess, because Boston isn't advancing. So. Yeah, they're, they're there you done. go. That's <laughs> we have a little bit to smile about there, I guess. But anyway, yeah, certainly some really good hockey on. The All yeah. right. <laughs> Richard Duggan, thanks. Thank you. Um, and uh, we'll be keeping you informed of everything that's been happening uh, in the news as um, as it evolves throughout the course of the day. And quite a few uh, events underway this afternoon. We have uh, report left right and center um so uh stay tuned for all of that well um there's been a lot of um these big farewell tours i suppose in the music world as of late well aerosmith is going to launch a 40 date farewell tour is it actually on september 2nd because we tend to see farewell tours and then we'll see a second farewell tour um but uh, they're launching their farewell tour september 2nd in philadelphia ending january 26th in montreal guitarist joe perry says he thinks it's about time especially with every founding member over the age of 70 now frontman steve tyler is 75 would you believe tyler and perry say the band looking forward to digging into its catalog of rock classics including Crazy, Janie's Got a Gun and Living on the Edge and that was uh, radio staples throughout the course of the 1970s in particular of course the Rolling Stones still going uh, strong many of them uh, pushing 80 now uh, and of course, uh, we lost um, um, Charlie a little while ago as well. But uh, it's just amazing to see some of these performers still out there and on the stage and giving it their all uh, at ages when most people are looking forward to a little downtime. <laughs> you know, uh, and touring is not an easy is not an easy thing to do. Ask any musician or any performer who uh, who tours. It's it's a tough tough lifestyle even for the youngest of participants so uh, anyway good on them can you just imagine all over the age of 70 um we are um we have lines open where's dave 
how we're doing, Dave? Um, he's ready to take your calls. And Monday morning is a little bit on the slow and lazy side. And uh, if you're enjoying the sun in the west coast of Newfoundland and Labrador, or whatever weather is uh, looking at you through the glass, um, give us a call and let us know what you have to say about uh, anything that happens to be on the go. And you know what? Race registration. Um, resume today for Kane's Quest and we're hoping to speak with Chris Lacey of Kane's Quest about that uh, of course Kane's Quest abruptly cancelled this year because of um, unusual thawing conditions that caused some really big problems for a lot of the participants and we saw some um, situations that could have gone very very badly there and in fact they were starting to go badly but uh, everybody came out of it okay thank goodness but um, uh so they're resuming their um, race registration today, and uh, they're hoping for a, a good response. They're getting a lot of positive response to that. Normally, Kane's Quest would take place another two years from now, but they're going to resume it next year instead, and uh, fingers crossed that'll be uh, a great event. So we're up to news time now with Jolene Grimes. She'll keep you informed of all the latest news. And when we come back, we hope to hear from you. Here are the numbers to call. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back into the final hour of the program. Uh, Linda Swain here, sitting in for Patty Daly. And uh, we're going to go now to Tom Badcock. Hello. Hello, Linda. How are you? I can't remember the last time I spoke with no, you. No, it's been a while for sure. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Linda, uh, I tried to call you in last week, but I got busy, and, and uh, Dave called me back this morning. Uh, we, uh, One of the very upstanding members of the St. John's community broke into the hub uh, on Thursday oh. and uh, had, a, had a field day for himself, stole a bunch of the money that we had uh, raised from our bingo and from our dart league uh, to pay for their uh, dinner and dance on Friday. Uh, you know, I, I just, <laughs> maybe you can justify stealing from from some other people. I don't know, but breaking in and stealing money from a charity, man, that's uh, that's low. But I guess when you need drugs or you need alcohol, uh, you lose all sense of morality. So, uh, what are the losses? Oh, about fifteen hundred dollars. They uh, we estimate fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars, and of course. Uh, money is not covered by insurance, so we we just got to suck it up. Fortunately for us, not that it'll do any good now, but our camera system uh, was able to uh, get some good pictures. And one of the neighbors uh, happened to see the person jumping off our deck, so we, we've got them identified. But you know, that morning, first as soon as the convenience store opened, he was down there purchasing beer. So <laughs> you know. Unfortunately, yeah. How do you ever get your money back? It's just gone. But the fact that they just do these things to a to a charity it just uh, it sickens me. You know, actually sickens me. But I guess that's the that's the society we live in these days. Have you um, had much trouble in the area? We we have not actually. Uh, you know, we 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 got our security system, we got our camera system, we got all those things, but. This individual, you can see him on the video camera. He's crawling on his hands and knees to, to not set off the motion detectors. And 
you know, he obviously cased the joint beforehand and uh, broke into an area where there are no security alarms uh, and uh, just, you know, had his way with us. Uh, so, you know, I don't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> you can't post a 24-hour guard there. It's just not practical for us. And uh, But this is the first time we've had a break-in now in, in years and years and years and years, and it's, it's so disappointing, you know, and you try to go to work, and the first thing you see is the damage that was done, and then there was a bunch of change taken, so that was all over the floor, and uh, you know, just uh, just disappointing. And, so, what know, kind of an was, impact does that have on on your your programs and activities? Oh, we'll 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 make it off. It's just it's just a setback, you know. When you, we take fifteen hundred dollars, that that takes us a while to to raise that kind of money, you know. It's a a bunch of bingo afternoons, a bunch of dart players paying the membership and things like this. So we'll recover, but it's just uh, it's disappointing. Whether it be five dollars, ten dollars, you know, I'm sure broken into your home is like you're you're invaded. Your own privacy was invaded, and uh, you know it's I don't know, and I don't know what the solution is. Uh, it's not the police's fault. It's it's just. You know, I guess we got to accept it. That's going to happen, and uh, try and put in this kind of well. Our, we're we're to blame a bit, I guess, for not depositing the money as soon as we uh, as soon as we had it. But you know, you you, you get a little lackadaisical all over time and start trusting and forgetting where we live, and that's the price you pay. You know, so. Well, I'm sorry to hear that uh, that's happened. Hopefully, like you say, now you'll you'll bounce back. I find usually when things like this happen, the, the community comes together in a very big kind of way. Oh, yeah, they do. We, we got great community support. We got great everything. And uh, and I'm not calling because we're looking for anybody to, to, to give us a handout or anything. That's not what we're doing. It's, we've been struggling since COVID, and we've been trying to get things back together. And, you know, uh, when this happens, you know, we, we're the type of people that we just, we'll just suck it up and get back at it. So uh, I'm sure... All of our members understand that, and uh, they'll enjoy their dinner and dance this Friday just as much as uh, as if uh, this never happened. But I just want to let the, let the general public know what had happened because we did get a couple of calls about it. That there were some police cars near the next day and things, and uh, so people were always wondering what happened. And so that's what happened. Uh, and about two thirty on Thursday morning, uh, that's when he broke in and and did his deed. Well, I'm very sorry to hear it, Tom. Uh, uh, I do appreciate your call and, and the update. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the call. All righty. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we're going to speak with Jeff uh, and you. Give us a call. And we're back. Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, and Jeff is on the line. Hi, Jeff. Oh, hey. How are you, Linda? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you. Um, you've been a journalist for a long time. I was wondering, I was, I'm always fascinated by that career. I got a couple of qu- I know I called in about biking safety and stuff, but now that I got you on the line, I was wondering if it was okay if I could ask you about being a journalist for a moment. Sure. Um, I, I just uh, can imagine what you must be up to, but do you have several stories all on the go at the one time, or do you? Uh, is it a weekly assignment? Oh, 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 o
Uh, I'm glad you called. Um, uh, in radio news, um, it's a very different kind of um, product than print or even television. Uh, television, they put together, what, 10, maybe 15 pieces a, a night? You know what I mean? Um, in radio, it's a, it's a continuum, if you will. Um, the news that we run at 11 might not be the same news that we run at 11.30, if you know what I'm saying. It's a, it, oh, we're yes. able to develop the story over the course of time as opposed to having something completely finished. And I think a lot of people... Um, lose track of that sometimes you know we'll put up stories online because people are looking for a finished product and they say well how come you haven't had the other side well we're working on the other side we'll have that now shortly if you know what i'm saying um so it's a continuum uh so and and we write in a broadcast style which is kind of a more succinct way of of writing if you will so the detail is not always there but you have to use your words very carefully to convey exactly the right uh meaning um, from the interviews that you've done or the assignments that you've attended or whatever the case may be. Um, so we're often working on, well, I personally can be working on 25 or 30 stories a day. That's an incredible number. Uh, uh, but not, do you, do you get not unusual. For breaking stories, uh, does your phone ring in the nighttime? Uh, we need someone to, uh, to go out and cover this. Oh, yeah, it's a 24-7 gig for sure. Um, And your phone does tend to go off a lot at night. Uh, Now, you know, the availability of people to go out and attend things, it all depends on what it is, if you know what I'm saying. Um, And then you have to weigh... um, weigh all those things given resources and all of those kinds of things but yeah it's a it's a pretty much 24 7 so oftentimes you know news is news <laughs> you don't know when russia is going to invade ukraine for instance or you know to give one example um so you don't know um what could happen at any given time so when something happens 10 30 at night guess what we will have it for you as in, in the best of our capacity if you know what i mean Amazing. I always enjoy your delivery of the news. I know you've been at it a long time. I just had to ask you those few questions. Right. Well, like I say, radio, it, because it tends to be a little bit uh, shorter in duration and that sort of thing, we're often working on, any one of us, uh, working on dozens of stories a day. I, I always wanted to be in radio, actually. Oh, is that right? Well, you should apply. <laughs> I think it may be too late for me. No, it's never too late. Never too late. How's my voice? It's good. Thank you. We're doing a live audition here, folks. Anyone interested? <laughs> Give us a call. <laughs> I, was, um, I was calling in today, though. My topic to discuss with you was uh, bicycles and bicycle safety. Right. We're getting at that time of year now where everybody's getting their bike back on the road, tuning it up, pumping up the tires, heading out. Absolutely. And uh, there's still a lot of debris and dust. And in some cases, uh, if you're in places like higher elevations, there's still some snow. Oh, yeah. It's it's not for the faint of heart out there quite yet. But uh, one of the discussions that comes up, especially on the Avalon in the metro area, is regarding um, multi-use trails and bike trails and um, 
and the uh, running trail. Uh, is it the Virginia River running trail? Yeah. I, I can't remember the name of it now, but there's been some controversy over it. The uh, runners uh, don't want it to be a multi-use trail for bicycles, and the bicycles really want to get on there and pave that trail to make it a multi-use trail. But uh, one of the things that I always think about when this subject comes up is, um, especially we're seeing the increase in e-bikes, our sidewalks. I feel that uh, the sidewalks are a much underutilized um, piece of infrastructure. They really don't work that well for anybody. In the areas that we even have them. In if you know what I mean. Have them. Yes, I do. But uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples now of things I've observed. If you've, have you ever um, observed a person in a wheelchair uh, transiting on the road? Yeah, many times. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, for a wheelchair user often is on the shoulder of the road because the sidewalk is not fit for their electric wheelchair. And so this is an example of how sidewalks are really not uh, designed well. And they could definitely use a an upgrade in design, in my opinion. Well, even, um, I mean, my eyes were open. I mean, I've been walking all my life. And my eyes were opened when I had a little fella and I was taking him out in the, in the, um, the pram and going on the sidewalks and trying to navigate sidewalks and taking them down over these high and putting them back up over things. You know, that really opened my eyes to the difficulties of navigating sidewalks for anyone who is differently abled. Exactly. And I do uh, quite a bit of biking and uh, I use it to, to commute. And I often do use sidewalks when the roads are narrow or uh, very busy, even though technically bicycles are really not permitted on sidewalks. But if you take, and I'll give you an example, you take the stretch of road, Kennett Road, for example, busy street, four lanes. Often, you if you're on the uh, upper part of Kennett Road, the sidewalk, you, you won't see another person on the sidewalk. And so it's a it's a, an adequate place to ride a bike up Kennett Road. I've done it several times, and, and there are other examples. Um, but what I guess my point is, is that if we rethought the way sidewalks were designed and designated one side of the street for uh, walkers and the other side of the street for all non-motorized vehicles, and then uh, maybe widen the sidewalk a little bit. I, I wonder if that could be something that that is possible. There certainly needs to, some kind of a solution needs to be made to make uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and the city um, more bike friendly. And um, we see a lot of people who like to do long distance uh, cycling and used to take the shoulder of the Trans-Canada Highway, but then they introduced these rumble strips. And so now that's a very narrow area that you, you're biking along in, you know, difficult conditions, we'll say, with vehicles, um, uh, you know, flying past you and the like. You know, it doesn't feel safe when you see that sort of thing. And I can just imagine what it's like for the cyclist. Well, I have done a few of those type of trips, uh, fully loaded long distance trips with panniers. 
and on the highway. Um, as I got older, my um, nerve for that kind of thing uh, diminished. So I I did my last one two years ago. And uh, I, I, on the main highway with the rumble strips, my uh, personal experience was the shoulder of the road where there is rumble strips is fairly wide, so they, they didn't really cause an issue for me. However, when you get off the, the main Trans-Canada Highway and on some of the branch uh, divisions, that's where things get very dicey because the roads can be uh, down to two lanes and you're in rural areas and there is no shoulder. The white line uh, is right up against the gravel and then vehicles are traveling at high rates of speed very close. And um, uh, recently, with the increase of distracted driving and people uh, texting and driving, I just lost my nerve for it completely. So, so I'm out of that game. But I do still like to commute around the city, and then I do a couple of good runs around, uh, say, a Petty Harbor Loop or, uh, or, or different long rides like that. Not to mention uh, the fact that the shoulders of the roads in many areas as well, uh, cracked, broken, uh, washed out in some cases. True, all true. And then uh, another heartbreaking news, some major infrastructure in the city has been been built in the last number of years with no regard for any shoulder at all. And uh, which road comes to mind is uh, Black Marsh Road. They completely redid Black Marsh Road. Um, where it uh, connects uh, kind of on the way to Mount Pearl there. And no shoulder, but lots of room for a shoulder. It's all gravel shoulder. It, it really was, ah, that one broke my heart, i got to say. Wow, I, I hadn't noticed that. Of course, I wouldn't because I'm not cycling in that area. So, um, yeah, that's fascinating. So why would that yeah. be? Is it just a cost measure or what? Um. I guess it's partly cost, but I really do believe that it's just lack of vision, lack of uh, foresight. I don't think that too many people um, on the city council think about this stuff very much, and therefore it's not top of the agenda. So we are car culture, and all infrastructure that is built is – primarily built for that and and often any other form of transportation is overlooked another example is the the team Guju highway uh it connects their um i think it's pennywell road and then you can take the team Guju highway on up uh and you can go to Kemout road or you can go to black marsh road that that'd be great uh great spot for shoulder no shoulder and that's a very dangerous patch of asphalt as well. It's amazing. And uh, just over the last week, I noticed uh, numerous times, as a matter of fact, people having to pull over onto shoulders of the road for a variety of reasons, I would imagine. And all you see is the dust and the debris flying up and flicking out across the road and everything as they're trying to slow down and get off the road um, for whatever reason. Uh, it just seems so unsafe to me. Yeah, it is. It's it's not for it. It, it does. I, as I get older, I, I become more cautious, and and I don't have the same nerve for it that I once had. But I still, I'm still doing it. Uh, but the one thing that I do notice, and, and and that I was just my main point, I suppose, for calling in is uh, a re 
I think that there is room to rethink how sidewalks are designed and that sidewalks, at least on one side of the road, if, if, the, um, if the surface of the sidewalk was, was redesigned uh, or uh, upgraded, that it could be suitable for, for bicycles. And, and there really doesn't need to be uh, a ton more money put into it uh, to redesign a complete road. But just if one side of the road was designated, and a ra- I always envision like a raised piece of asphalt on one side of the road, as opposed to the the concrete sidewalks, concrete, which yeah. we've had forever and ever. Well, Jeff, I uh, wonder... Interesting and insightful. I wonder what other people have to say about it. I really appreciate your time this morning. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, I always enjoy hearing you on the radio. I appreciate that. when you're sitting in for Patty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Jeff, uh, for calling in. Have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, we're up to news time now with Jolene Grimes. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. And we're back. Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. Uh, He should be back tomorrow. Um, In the meantime, we are going to go now to Labrador, where we're going to speak with Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hi, how are you? Good. You're the operations manager with Kane's Quest. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. And I didn't catch your last name. I'm sorry. My last name is Hennigan. 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 Okay. And um, you are, uh, of course, um, you've opened registration for the 2024 Kane's Quest race. How's it going? Yes, you got it. So today is the official opening day for registration. Um, but today is sort of a pre-registration day for all the racers who had um, paid registration from 2023. Uh, so with the cancellation of 2023, we thought we'd give them the opportunity to uh, have one day where they could register before anyone else. Um, and that's today. So tomorrow we'll officially open again for all other registrants. Um and that's again at 10 a.m. tomorrow. So um, are you getting much interest of the teams that participated uh, this past winter interested in trying it again? You bet, yeah. Uh, we've had quite a bit of interest, actually. We've had a lot of phone calls, uh, emails coming through, messages you know, online, uh, just looking for information, trying to uh, see if there's going to be a 2024 race. Uh, so we've had a great deal of um, interviews and conversations and things with the 2023 racers. Uh, the phone has been quite steady today, so this is great news. <laughs> um, we've only been open for about an hour as well, so it's nice to see uh, the interest already. Um, we've also had a lot of veterans uh, from previous races of 2023 calling in and uh, looking for information, how to register, um, talking to us about teams that they want to put into the race for 2024 if we go ahead, uh, and also a lot of rookie teams that we haven't had race with us yet. Um, lots of interest coming from all over the place, so that's also really exciting. That is exciting. Um, so it, logistically, how much will have to go into getting a race uh, ready to go for 2024? Uh, there's a there's a ton of work that goes into it, um, of course. Uh, but I think for us, it's going to be a, it's going to I don't want to say easier, but it's going to be a little smoother, I think, because we are able to use some of the things that we did in 2023 that we never really got to complete, uh, where the race got canceled. Um, so our mapping uh, route is quite similar to the one that we used in 2023 with some minor changes, um, uh, things like that. I think that will just 
help things uh, transfer over to 2024 quite easily. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, events and things that come around the race that I guess take a lot of the planning um, and time. And so that's basically where our energy is going to land this year. <laughs> and of course you had to secure the funding yet. That's right. Yeah. So we haven't officially um, said that we're racing in 2024 yet. We haven't confirmed it. Uh, we're hoping soon, um, but the funding is definitely going to be one of those major points that, that uh, allow us to say whether or not we're going to race for 2024. Well, I'm so happy to see that uh, despite all of these things that remain up in the air and all the work that has yet to be done, that the interest is so high. Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's really, really amazing to see. Um, I'm excited, and I hope that it goes forward because I know that there's a lot of work, not just from our end, but from the teams and the support crews and families that get involved with it as well. Uh, also, our volunteers, they put a lot into helping us prepare for the race. So good luck for everyone, and it's so nice to see that everyone's still here, hands-on, ready to jump right back in. So uh, here's the 2024. I know I've spoken to him a few times now, and I'm most curious. Uh, will Team 66 Wild Finland be registering again? <laughs> we really aren't sure about that yet. We're obviously hoping they come back. Everybody loves to see them. Uh, they're, they're a wonderful team, um, but we haven't had any confirmation yet. <laughs> Very good. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh, uh, some of the, the teams that uh, participate, especially those from very far away, will uh, will take that plunge, so to speak. Sorry, pardon the pun, uh, and uh, come back. Um, so uh, for anyone who's never participated in or, or been part of that excitement, explain to us what, what it's like, um, what Kane's Quest is like, the kind of... I don't know, atmosphere it creates. It is unreal. Um, so I started with Kane's Quest in 2019, and I have to say uh, it didn't take very long, and I didn't know much about the race when I started, uh, but it certainly runs through your blood, and I can't say it any differently. There's something about this race that just pulls you in, and you have to just keep coming back. It's amazing, and this is only from the planning side of things. I can't even imagine uh, the feeling for the racers and the fans and volunteers years you know the people who help organize this race that have been doing it for years and years and years it's it's an incredible feeling it's very um I don't it's electric almost it's really interesting it's amazing really uh, we have a Labradorian in our newsroom and uh, every time she starts to talk about Kane's Quest she becomes that much more animated and you can see the sparkle in her eyes and it's just the the excitement that she feels even thinking about it it gets spread throughout the newsroom so it's it's very Aww. interesting <laughs> that's great and I gotta say that's probably exactly what you see when you hear people talk about Kane's Quest it's, it's like that all over the place it's amazing. Well, I'm so glad that this is um, back up and running, so to speak, that uh, you're starting the pre-registration today and the, uh, mm -hmm. the official registration, I suppose, um, starts tomorrow. Is that right? For anybody who's right. interested, what can they expect? Um, what do you mean, sorry? Like for like, uh, yeah. For the, if you if you have a team, you're thinking about joining them. What do you what do you need to do to register? Um, so basically, for registration, you can go to our, not today, but for all other registrants, the, the regular registration will be open for anyone to go to our website, www.canesquest.com. Uh, there will be a registration button there at the very top of the page. You just click into it, create an account, and register through that. Um, there's a couple of forms that need to be filled out and returned back to us, and after that, you're registered. Fantastic. Well, all the best, and uh, I'm sure you'll be keeping us up to date on any developments there. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this, Sarah. Thanks so much. Of course. Have a great day. Alrighty. Bye-bye. That's uh, Sarah Hengen. Uh, She's the operations manager with Kane's Quest in Labrador. Uh, When we come back, we're going to hear from Daryl Mercer with Marine Atlantic about these. uh, No, not Daryl Mercer. It's just a person named Daryl. Sorry. (laughs) Didn't mean to get you all excited there um, unnecessarily. But uh, Daryl wants to talk about uh, Marine Atlantic and the hikes there uh, when we come back right after this. And we're back into the final few minutes of the show. Anything on your mind? Now is your chance to give us a call. We're going to go now to Daryl in the Gander area. Hello, Daryl. Oh, hi, uh, Linda. How are you today? Great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's good to hear. Uh, wine convo. By the way, Daryl Mercer, that's my other brother, Daryl. Ah, your other brother, Daryl. <laughs> of course. I'm not sure where Larry's too, but. <laughs> <laughs> An old Newhart reference. Love it. Oh, I heard that all my life growing up. I'm sure <laughs> you did. It was a good show, good laugh. It was, yeah. Yeah, one combat days, <clears throat> excuse me, the Marine Atlantic and uh, CAS, and, uh, and you know, it's never a good time to operate, uh, uh, you know, for CAS to the customers and uh, transportation and uh, so forth, which is domino effects, which will translate to uh, higher costs for everything, groceries and the list goes on. But when you look at that Marine Atlantic, that is our Trans-Canada Highway. And in my opinion, that should be no cost because that's our highway. Because you look at if you leave Portobash, you get on the ferry, you go to Nova Scotia, and you drive, I don't know, anywhere in Canada. It don't cost you nothing to drive the roads when you get off in North Sydney. There's no charge to drive like the highway in Nova Scotia or whatever. So when you look at that, Marine Atlantic is an extension to the highway, and there should be not no cost at all for that. And not only that, look at it this way. Well, it's that supposed to be equivalent to what it would cost <clears throat> to drive it. Would would that not be correct? Well, well, I don't know. Uh, debatable. I guess we have to get in, you know, look into it further in depth that way. But look at it this way. If that was subsidized totally, which it should be because it's our Trans-Canada Highway, look at the economic boom would be on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, Port of Bass or Newfoundland and Nova Scotia and so forth. You have more people come to the province, which will translate, would be good for business people, small business people, tourism. And in tenfold, the government would get their money back because all these businesses, whatever, are paying taxes. So be more revenue, more taxes, more money go back to the government. And that'd be good for on both sides of the Atlantic. And you, uh, I'll give you a good example, okay? Recently, the federal government gave $13 billion, $13.7 billion to Volkswagen, a company which is making money. But their train of thought is why they did it, because it would be job creation in Ontario, St. Thomas, or whatever. It would be domino effects, like, you know, spinoffs, like it would be good for small business and, and so forth. But at the end of the day, they said they'll get their money back through taxes, because more jobs created, uh, more business opportunities for business, more coffers will go back to the government. So look at Marine Atlantic as the same thing. If that was totally subsidized, wherever cost it is per year, same format. You have more travel going back and forth, more money going into the economies, Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, and the rest of Canada. So the, the mindset got to change. So, so by doing that, 
it will be more of an economic boom, and the government will get their money back taxes-wise, plus probably for operating the ferry. So I think this is something that we got to take a look at because if you start increasing, like Marine Atlantic got increased, and they're saying they're losing money, whatever, I mean, it's not going to stop here. You know, it's going to keep going and going and going. And the way the economy is going now, we can't afford this. So, in my opinion, that the federal government, I'd like to hear some federal MPs. I think one spoke out, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, for Avalon. He's the only one who spoke out on the ferry service. And um, so, I mean, uh, I'm not hearing nothing from the other federal MPs. They're, they're silent. They're just no one saying nothing about this issue. And this is very critical. So I think that's what needs to be done. And this is what the, 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 the gumption of the federal MPs, they should be lobbying for this. But again, they're all silent. Well, it's entrenched. The service is entrenched in the terms of union uh, with uh, when uh, Newfoundland and Labrador entered Confederation with Canada. Do you think we're moving away from that? I I, I think we're moving away because I think, if I'm not mistaken, the ferry service is term 32, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, and, you know, and, and like, you know, I have to read more in depth on it. Uh, uh, maybe when I get a chance, I'll go more in depth. At you. Anyone can Google terms of union. I think it's term 32. I stand to be corrected. But, I mean, uh, I think we are drifting away, and, and uh, I think we're going to have to get back to reality. And I think that service should be totally subsidized. You know, now if anyone wants any amenities after on the ferry, like extras, whatever, yes, you pay. But I'm talking about the ferry service itself. Should be no cost for, for someone going across with their vehicles, or whatever, because that's an extension of our Trans Canada Highway, and and that's something to think about. Now, some people might think, well, you know, that's a bit extreme, whatever. But I don't. But look at the economic boom that could create for Newfoundland, Labrador, and for Nova Scotia and rest of Atlantic Canada. Well, the whole the of Canada, uh, it will translate in mega dollars, and the government will get back their money tenfold in taxes. So, so if they use the excuse, say, okay, well, Volkswagen, that's why they're putting billions of dollars into St. Thomas, Ontario, same format. So, what's the difference of our ferry? You put money in that, and and same thing, a good economic boom. You uh, raise some very uh, important points here, Daryl. And, of course, uh, you know, our economy prospers when people can get here. (laughs) And we can get goods and services in and we can ship goods and services out. Um, So it's it's a vital link, there is no doubt. Yeah, and, and, you know, uh, and that's what we're going to have to take a look at because, I mean, you look at the tourism industry here now, uh, uh, you know, restaurants, whatever. I mean, look at the boom that could create it and money generated. The government will get their money back. So if, if they use Volkswagen, $13.7 billion for the same format in Ontario, that ferry service is no different. Same format and it will generate economic boom for actually all of Canada. So I like for the federal MPs to come out of their cold of silence, except for the I got his name forgot now, the MP for Avalon. Uh, he spoke out. Ken McDonald. Yes, sorry, yes, yeah. And uh, yeah, he spoke out, uh, you know, uh, on the increases, but no one else is speaking out. They're gone silent. So it's about time to start taking the bull by the horn, speak out. And this is what we need done, and this is what got to be done. Either that, we're, we're heading for more economic crisis. Is like an insult to injury. I mean, how much more can you take? This is going to go up ferry service. Then 
this is going up, that's going up. You can't bleed blood out of a turnip. So something, something's got to give. Or, or we're heading for, well, we're in a almost a disaster situation now when you look at the economy. But uh, I mean, do we want to keep going and and the bomb comes out of it all, and then then you're in real trouble. Well, Daryl, I really appreciate your call this morning. Thanks so much. All right, great. And again, Linda, thank you for having me on your show, and all the best to you and staff at VOCM and your listening audience. Appreciate it. Have a good day. You as well. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, We're going to go now to Nancy. You're on the air. Hi, Nancy. Hello. I just want to come in on uh, sort of piggybacking Daryl and make the point, a very brief point. I don't understand economics, but one point that wasn't mentioned, and I think it's a big one, is that if that theory was free, there would be a lot more of Americans come up. And that would be income not only for the province, but for Canada, the whole of the country. But right now, we're almost uh, putting up, or the authorities are putting up a barrier to free flow of transportation, free flow of tourism. The other thing is, if people could drive in here instead of flying, they can fly in cheaper than they can drive in. If they could drive in for free, well, I mean, that would be a, a real boomer. So right, I, I, and what about the cost of keeping that going then? Because we'll all have to pay would, that in the end, if you know what I mean. Like Daryl is saying, they could they could uh, use the money that comes in. The the kitty in the country and the province would be richer. So then you pay for it out of that income that comes into the province, the taxes and whatever. Hotels will be fuller. Rentals won't be needed so much. We won't have the the problem that we've got now with rentals. Restaurants will be busier. I mean, it could go on and on. I just haven't thought this through. I just called in to ask your your producer to suggest that to you. <laughs> so I'm thinking off the fly now. But I, I, I think Daryl is really onto something. Others have sent it before, said it before, and I think it's time now that, that the authorities really look at it. And he had a good point about uh, the, the plant up in St. Thomas. They're putting billions, billions they do because they know that the spin-offs will be good. Same thing applies, like Daryl was saying. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm not an economist or anything, but it's pure common sense, I think. Nancy, I really appreciate your call. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I know you were sort of put on the spot there, but I do appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much. All righty, thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you go. Uh, Two calls now on Marine Atlantic and whether or not it should be a free service to users. It is uh, an extension of our Trans-Canada Highway. It's entrenched in our terms of union, and a lot of people asking the question, why do we continually see the uh, rate going up and up and up when it should be subsidized. I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, we received this email a little earlier in the show and um, the uh, listener says, I'm listening to Open Line with all the good news about money being spent on highways and such and thousands of fishermen and plant workers out of work and not a word mentioned. It seems like we're disconnected from the worries of the government and Open Line. I I would take only a small amount of money 
sorry, to up the price of crab to 320, which would be the amount the fishermen could manage to go out and catch their quotas. St. John's will soon be feeling the pinch. If the crab fishery doesn't happen, no big trucks or in cards uh, or much else because uh, no money is coming in. It can't be spent. Where is the help coming from? The crab fishery is not happening without the price changing and everyone should get on board and support the fishery. Well, of course, we've been talking a lot about that over the last number of weeks. In fact, I've uh, had numerous guests on uh, News Talk and the like talking about the crisis facing the crab fishery this particular season. Uh, so that topic is always one uh, that is uh, open for conversation. And of course, if the crab fishery and the time is starting to tick down very rapidly, if that crab fishery doesn't go, the economic blow to this province is going to be felt for certain in a lot of areas of this province, not just rural Newfoundland and Labrador, but throughout the province as a whole, uh, because it represents such a huge um, uh, influx of, of money to this province. So um, it's an interesting argument. Should the uh, price be subsidized, perhaps, by government to make sure that it goes ahead and that it's economic uh, economical for uh, harvesters to go out, for plant workers to um, process that uh, crab to keep the plants going and to keep the economy humming. Um, it's an interesting argument. And if you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. It may not be today, however. The show is now over. But I want to uh, thank everyone who contributed to the show today. Patty should be back tomorrow, so we welcome that. And uh, I'm on News Talk this afternoon, 4 to 5. So if you want to continue any of these conversations, you're welcome to give us a call there as well. Thanks for listening, everyone.